This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by BeaverFit. And as always, this is another company that I've not only been aware of for several years, but I also completely trust and I know is a great fit for this audience. Having not only been a firefighter in my career, but also a strength and conditioning coach, I've seen the challenges that we have getting the tactical athlete fit when it comes to budgets, when it comes to space. And Beaver Fit has solutions for so many of our challenges. When it comes to space, they have the gym box, for example, which is literally the size of a footlocker that when you open it up and build it becomes a squat rack, a pull-up bar, a box, and even a wall ball target. So you can get a full workout for a crew purely on that one box. Expanding out, they have storage containers that become entire gyms. You store everything in the inside, and you can then deploy racks and pull-up bars on the outside. They have gyms on trailers you can take from station to station. They have tactical boxes with breaching props and collapse props. And then on the flip side, the durability is another issue that we see. So often departments buy the low bid, you know, the cheapest they can find. And ultimately, that hard-earned wellness budget gets wasted in equipment that rusts and falls apart. BeaverFit's gear is designed to be used in the most extreme environments, whether it's the deserts of the Middle East or simply on the deck of a naval ship. So they are designed to not only be outside, but to be beaten up by some of the most elite operators on the planet. Now, they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 10% off your purchase. So if you go to either the US site, which is graymangear.com, or the UK site, which is get 
beaverfit.com. Use the code BTS10, that's BTS10, and you will get 10% off your purchase. If you want to hear more about this company, and I'm sure you do, listen to episode 477 with the original founder, Tom Beaver from the UK, or the founders of BeaverFit USA, Alex Rudhouse and Mike Taylor, on episode 457. Welcome to episode 486 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Tom Morgan. Now, Tom is a British firefighter who's had an incredibly interesting life from working the doors as a bouncer for many years to his transition into the fire service and the unique role that he holds there, working with the strength and conditioning group 22 Smoking Aces and his own very powerful mental health story. So before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, but most importantly, leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it more and more visible and therefore easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who hasn't heard them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tom Morgan. Enjoy. Tom, I want to start by saying thank you. Thank you for, you know, responding to my kind of random request on Instagram and thank you for coming on the podcast today. That's cool, mate. I know I've been a bit of a pain to track down. Um, so we finally did it, haven't we? It's we taken did. a few months, but um, here we are at last. Beautiful. So here we are. So tell, tell everyone where you are. So where on planet Earth are you sitting right now? Um, I'm in Devon in the UK. Um, it's hot. Finally, we've got some sunshine here. It's been miserable for months. Um, so we finally had a good couple of days of sun, and I think the summer is finally here. Brilliant. Well, Devon's obviously known as one of our beach places in the UK. So are you close to the sea? Yeah, relatively. I'm kind of, um, I'm probably 20 minutes from the nearest one. Um, so obviously all the guys from kind of up north, we say, they will come down um, around this time of the year and invade the southwest. Um, so it's been absolutely the roads have been carnage, absolute carnage. So I don't want to jinx it, but we we've not been super busy on the roads with work. Normally around this time of the year, it sort of starts kicking off. So let's hope that it stays quiet. Brilliant. Well, before we get into your journey, you know, I'm always curious when I'm talking to people from different parts of the world. I'm trying to get home back to England um, in September. So I'm hoping the blooming restrictions are all eased off by then. Um, What has the last 12, 14 months been like for a Devon firefighter? Oh, um, do you know what? It's kind of been. I'm I'm quite kind of antisocial. So. The first we we had um, the first lockdown, which would have been ending around this time last year. Um, I actually didn't mind it. Um, I was I was in a pretty good place, and um, I was still working. And a lot of people weren't. Obviously, you know they were they're being forced to 
um, into furlough and people being work, working from home and stuff. Um, but I was still working. I was still working my main job. Um, I was still working as an operational firefighter. And I was still able to see my, my son. I was still able to train. I was going out running. I was using the facilities at work. I was using all my kit at home. Um, and those are like the three kind of boxes that I need to tick to have a happy life. Like, you know, it's like working out, working and seeing my little one. And if, if all of those three things are happening, then I'm good. Personally, you know what I mean? Like me personally, I'm good. A lot of people, I think, struggled though. There were a lot of people that were struggling with the social restrictions, um, I think. Um, be that going out and, you know, like going to bars, restaurants, meeting friends, or even the social side of like the gyms and stuff being open. I think that was massive as well for a lot of people. But it's been, yeah, I mean, me, I've been okay. I've, I've been all right. Um, me personally. Um, the the second kind of part of it, when we went back into lockdown at the end of last year, um, I struggled a little bit more. Um, I was I was kind of having a bit of a, a crap time like in my personal life. And that just compounded it, I think, not being able to like go out or, or you know, go to the gym to vent and stuff. So I struggled a bit more in the second part. Um, but again, I still have my work. So, and I still, I was still seeing my little one. So I was, I was all right. You know, I, I got through it, came out the other side. Um, and now we've got good weather. We're, we're out of lockdown. There's hopefully we're looking at the 21st of June over here is when it all ends. So all restrictions are lifted, so long as everything kind of goes according to plan and, and Boris is happy. Um, 21st of June, we're, we're back to kind of normal. No masks, no social distancing, all of that sort of stuff. So um, I think it's going to be quite weird going back to like not wearing masks in the shops and stuff. I'm just used to it now. I don't know but like what it's been like for you over there. I guess it's been the same, right? Yeah, well, it's funny. I just had a moment yesterday. So my side gig now is stunts. I work at Universal Studios. Um, and we've had to do the, when we opened up back in June or July. So it was pretty early on. Um, but it was, you know, obviously the entire look of the theme parks had changed and everyone's, you know, lining up two meters away from each other and they're all wearing masks. And it was just, you know, that pendulum swung so hard to one way. And so we've been doing these stunt shows wearing masks the whole time. We have to wear masks backstage. So yesterday was the very first time that we were told, okay, if you're vaccinated, which I am, I'm kind of middle of the road with that whole thing. I'm not happy about it, but I'm not deathly opposed to it. You know, I think the fitness and the underlying health is a big part of this equation. But that aside, you know, um, I wanted to be able to move around and, and travel and everything and, and, you know, help with this whole movement of stopping this uh, virus. But anyway, so we didn't have to wear masks backstage. Now, we still have to wear them on stage, which is, again, I think it's more of a show than doing anything real. But we were literally like, oh, my God, I forgot what you look like. And you know, some of the, my friends had, like, big old beards under there. I didn't even realize they grew out. So, yeah, it was weird. But now, you know, you realize, oh, now, like, on stage, there was a little 
you know, occasionally something happens and you're kind of laughing and everything. Well, that was all hidden under the mask. Well, soon that mask is going to be gone. So it's going to, you know, change the way we even do that. But I had such a good day yesterday purely because I could see people smile. You know what I mean? I could see their faces. I could see their emotions. So I, I felt my spirits lift just from that one thing of the mask being removed. Yeah, that's that's cool. I, that's weird that you say that because I was thinking the other day about that and it you it's it's really weird when you see someone and like trying to like judge like what they're sort of like looking at you and you're kind of looking at them and you know like for example I'll be in like the coffee shop or something with my little boy and like he'll do something and I'll tell him off and then someone will look at me and I'll smile at them you know as if to say oh like you know he's cute isn't he but like I realize that I'm just staring at I'm staring down at him. Resting bitch and eyes. Like, yeah, and I, I, I have got, um, my ex-wife actually says that I've got a, a resting bitch face for men. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm a big guy and I've, I've got tattoos on my hands and my neck. And I've been like super conscious about like how I act in public. Because normally I'll just smile at someone as if to say, yeah, I'm not a threat. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you, know, you don't need to be like frightened of me i don't like you might look like a serial killer but like i'm a good guy um and then like i realized like i can't do that anymore um so yeah it's it's been really weird um like just little things like that that i've not really thought about um it's i think it's had a much bigger impact than everyone kind of realized yeah it definitely has just based on how i felt when I could yeah. see, because I, I had the same thing. I've got kind of smiley eyes anyway, but I felt yeah. myself like exactly what you're talking about. There was a moment where people need to know, like I was joking, you know how sarcastic yeah. we yeah. Brits can be. Normally you swallow it with a, you know, big cheesy grin. They're like, oh, okay, he was joking. So I'm like overly trying to smile with my eyes with the mask on, looking <laughs> like, you know, just, yeah, I mean, my eyes are like little slits as it is. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's funny. So now it just, yeah, the, the, you don't realize how much the rest of the face tells you about emotion, about, you know, whether someone's a threat, whether someone's offended, whether someone's laughing along with you. And now, thank God, when this is all kind of passed, we're, we're going to, we, I mean, we've been completely recalibrated, but it's kind of funny watching the unfolding and all the, the human reactions to seeing faces again. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, going back to normal after having like the last 12 months of this crazy kind of, time i think that's going to be like everyone trying to get back used to like being normal again because i feel like i've just got used to how it is because we adapt don't we like humans adapt like super quickly to stuff so i've got used to how it is now like you know and i think that if it stayed like this forever then people would just deal with it but it's you know it, i guess it would be nice to go back to it like you said like the smiling thing in public and not having a like you know having a walk like park your car and like walk halfway to the supermarket and realize you've left your mask in your car and then do the walk back to the car to get it that kind of thing you know yeah and the nastiness i think you know whether it was the pro mask the anti-mask whatever just yeah you know i mean the way yeah. people were talking to each other instead of just you know you know, hey, if you I get it totally, if you've got a business, you want someone to wear a mask, that's your business. You have the right to ask, you know, if I'm going to wear a shirt, a suit and tie, a mask, whatever. But it's the way that you ask someone, you know what I mean? And there was there was a lot of this kind of very short finger pointing nastiness going on both directions from from more of the the extremes. And I think we lost a little the compassion during some of this. Yeah, I agree. 
it's um it's been challenging it's certainly been challenging but we endure don't we do you know what i mean and, and we adapt and we we just go on um and and that's what we do now what about in devon specifically because i'm always curious again around the world um like guernsey is a really fascinating story on how they dealt with this they were very successful they locked their borders down and they were they were out and about last summer living completely yeah. normally again then they had another reoccurrence at the end of last year um so you know it's now is when we do lessons learned and you know what everyone saw what everyone did what worked what didn't what did you guys see in the uh the county you know in, in the devon area as far as the actual you know deaths and, and the impact that covid made this last year so in the southwest we didn't really see much of it at all we we kind of like got away with it um a lot of it was happening um you know like up north um the northern part of the uk um was affected really badly um and and it never really made it down here and then when they obviously like reopened the roads and and people started heading down it it, it sort of brought it down a little bit but it never got it, it never got that bad down here and the second part of the lockdown was when they sort of put everyone into like a tiered thing so you had like i can't even remember now how, how it worked but we were like the lowest tier you know um so i feel like i'm pretty lucky or like all the guys that live down here we were pretty lucky with it because we weren't in full lockdown as long as most of the other country um we we kind of got away with it a little bit but yeah i think we had the lowest um numbers as far as cases and, and deaths or related deaths um down in the southwest at least um, so yeah, it wasn't so bad. I, I just can't even imagine what it must have been like for these kind of like you know. I, I'm, I live in the country, you know. I've got a house, I've got a garden, and to think that there's people sort of stuck in the, the bigger cities under full lockdown. They've got a couple of kids, they're in a flat, you know, nowhere to go. I just can't even imagine what that must have done to people. You know, it was hard enough having to deal with it with all the facilities and everything that I've got, you know, but, um, yeah, my, my heart goes out to the people that like really genuinely struggled with it. Cause I, I think people did. Um, and I was really blessed to have, um, to li a, live where I do and, and obviously have the support network and, and the facilities that I've got through my work. Um, so that I was able to continue working as almost as normal, um, you know, there were some changes within the workplace, obviously, um, but having the facilities like the gym and stuff that I could go in and use, it was, you know, an absolute godsend. I'm not sure what I'd have done without it, to be honest with you, because that keeps me sane. Yeah. Well, I had uh, Nick Wickham on the show who he made the news, one of the gym owners that in, oh my God, I'm yeah. blanking on where it was, but it was in the Liverpool area where they basically pushed. Yeah, I remember, I, yeah, I remember seeing all the posted the, the Instagram posts and stuff and, he was, he got fined, didn't he? He was like getting like hit with like loads of fines for keeping the gym open. Was that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they they basically, you know, they banded together. They presented the local government with the stats showing that you know gyms were not super spreaders, and they were able to overturn what had been done. But I think that's uh you know one of the things that we can pull out as well. I'm curious about you know what your area is, but what I saw 
globally was, you know, we were seeing these hotspots in cities where people are crammed together, where there's pollution, where maybe the underlying health isn't as good if people are relying on transit systems and all that kind of thing. And then where you saw a little bit more space, even where I am, where there is sunshine, we do have houses and gardens. We have a huge elderly population here and we didn't have that, you know, bigger spike really, even considering the population. What is like the the underlying health of people in Devon, with you being in the country, with you being by the ocean, do you tend to have a healthier population down there? Um, if I'm honest, I, I don't, I don't really know. Like, I don't want to say. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess. I mean, we've it, there's there's areas of Devon. Um, so we've got like places that are like kind of quite well known for like um to having like an elderly population. Um, there's like a little seaside town called Budley. Um, and that's quite sort of well known down here, and it's sort of, you know it's quite expensive. It's the sort of place you go to live and retire, and you know a, a lot of the seaside towns are, are kind of like that. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say generally it's it's pretty pretty healthy down here. Um, I'd, I wouldn't like to say that we're more healthy than like other places because I don't want people to come back and say, oh. We, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? um, but yeah, no, it's, it's. I mean, I love it down here. I've I've moved around a little bit, and I've I've lived in you know the bigger cities and stuff, and I, I lived in Wales, and I've um I've travelled around a little bit, um, and I ended up moving back down here uh, about ten, eleven years ago, um, and I love it here. You know, this is this is kind of like where I'm from, and this is sort of born and bred Devon boy. Um, yeah, it's great down here. I I, I love it. it. It's so nice, and it's kind of. It's quite sort of tranquil, um, but I'd, I'd much rather be here than in the, you know, the big cities. And they're cool, like, don't get me wrong, like, you know, like London and, and you know, Liverpool and Manchester, like, cool cities. But I, for me, like, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want to live somewhere like that crazy. It's too, too intense. I like the chilled life, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm born and bred in Bath area, so I can totally relate. I was born in a farm, so <laughs> not born in a farm, like baby Bath's Jesus. Lush, but <laughs> That's very nice. It's very, beautiful. Very nice. All right. Well, you mentioned about being born and bred. So let's, let's start chronologically on your journey then. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So um, it's myself and my sister. My sister's four years my younger um i was born in a tiny little village um called bradninch and there was nothing there there was nothing to do growing up um you know there was what did we have in bradninch when i was a kid there was a, a post office a butcher's and a hairdresser's and two pubs that was it that was literally it um tiny tiny little village um we were kind of maybe 20 30 minutes from exeter which is the one of the biggest cities, um, but obviously, you know, couldn't drive or like, you know, we were reliant on getting a bus in with your mates or whatever. So it wasn't until I was um, 16, 17. Um, and then I just got out. I had to get away. And I, I, you know, at that age, you're just like, I want to get out. So yeah, moved to the city. Um, but yeah, I had a really good upbringing. Um, my um my dad worked away a lot so i didn't really get to spend a lot of time with him um i saw him sort of every second weekend when he came home um but my mum didn't work which was quite nice we were um you know 
relatively wealthy family so you know never really wanted anything um i'd say i was probably quite spoiled um you know in a nice way um i had a really good relationship with my mum growing up um and I, I had a good relationship with my dad but i just never like saw him i mean never never got to see the guy but um yeah it was happy i, I got no like complaints like you know there, there was no no bad stuff went on as a kid i great i've got a great relationship with both of them still um and my sister as well um i don't probably see him as much as i should you know i think we can all say that about our family right um that probably put a bit more effort into actually spending a bit more time with them um but yeah like growing up it was boring um nothing to do apart from play video games and meet up and play football at the local park with my mates. And that's all I did for like the first 16 years of my life, which is crazy really. But I, I was never one of these kids that sort of went out and got into trouble or like got drunk or like, you know, stole stuff or broke stuff or set fire to stuff. I was just kind of like, I just, you know, I was just a chill kid. I was well behaved. Um, never i never got in trouble like you know just i was brought up really well like i think you know i owe that to my folks they were really good like fantastic um they never like they never like protected me from anything as such like if i wanted to do something they like fully support it they've always done that my whole life actually um every, all the, you know even the stupid decisions that i've made um stuff that i've always wanted to do they just said yeah just do it you know, so I think that's like something that I've taken as a dad, you know, because I'm a dad now and I'm, I'd, I'd like to think that I can do that with my son as well and support him in anything that he wants to go and do, no matter how crazy it might sound at the time. It's like, that's fine. Like, find your own path. Do you know what I mean? Like, figure out yourself. And, um, and that goes for anything, like what you want to do for a job, like, you know, discovering alcohol for the first time, taking drugs whatever it might be, like the whole, you know, the, the, the whole growing up thing that you do. Um, it's all about discovery, right? So um, I think the way my parents did it with me was they just kind of let me do it. They were like, yeah, that's fine. Like, if you want to go to the park and, and drink a bottle of vodka with your friends and go and do it. But, you know, I did it. I never did it again, <laughs> you know. Um, and... You know, it's the, it's the same with what I wanted to do with, like, I got into boxing really early on. And I know, like, you know, a lot of parents would probably be concerned about the health risks involved with boxing, you know, with, with brain damage and, and stuff. But they were fully supportive. They, In fact, they let me turn their garage into, like, a little boxing gym. And I had, like, a weight bench and a, a couple of punching bags in there and my dad hung the punch bags and the speed ball and I just did that like I you know it was it was awesome they're fully fully supportive in fact my the, the nearest boxing club when I was a kid was a uh, near the seaside town Exmouth and that's like a 35 minute drive from where I lived and my mum would like drive me because I couldn't drive you know I was like 14 15 years old she would of an evening she would drive me down and she would wait outside the gym for like an hour and a half for me to train and then she'd like you know pick me up and drive me back home again 
That's crazy to think that she did that. So yeah, I had like amazing support from my parents growing up doing anything I wanted to do. It was awesome. So what about career aspirations? When you were at school age, what were you dreaming of becoming one day? Weirdly, I didn't, I didn't enjoy school. Um, I didn't ever want to go. Um, I never really enjoyed it when I was there. I was never gifted academically. I, I struggled to pay attention in class. The, nothing ever really interested me. I found that the subjects that we studied were boring and not relatable. Um, uh, maybe history to us, an extent, like we did a bit of like World War II stuff, and I found that quite interesting. But generally, I think, um, you know, I was at school through the ninth, like, you know, the 80s and 90s. I don't know what it's like now. It, it seems a lot different. Um, though I think you can kind of choose what you want to learn now, but it was kind of like forced certain um, certain classes and, and stuff. It was kind of like, no, you will do this. You will learn about this. And that was kind of like, well, I don't really want to. So I, I would stay away i'd stay off you know i know i said i never got into trouble but i would feign illness so i didn't have to go in or i would accidentally on purpose miss the bus to school um so that we didn't have to get the next one in like late and, and i'd miss stuff and yeah um i got and i i got i got bullied quite badly at school um i was overweight i wasn't like obese but i was you know what kids are like right you know you got one little thing I had my ears stuck out as well so it was kind of like I was chubby I had big ears I wasn't very good at sport I never excelled in any classes so I was kind of an easy target um and I was bigger like I was quite tall and it's weird that like I think and you sort of I still see that now is kids pick on like the the big kind of soft guy right at school I think you, you see that a lot and I never really fought back and just kind of like, yeah, I hated it, man. I hated school. Um, secondary school in particular, like I, I had a really crap time. Um, I got bullied quite a lot at school. Um, and it wasn't until I left school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just, I felt like I, there was never like, oh, I really want to do this. This is what I want to do. Um, and I left school in 1996. And that's when I got into boxing a bit more. I was sort of doing it, but I was doing it at home and I was, I was doing a little bit at the gym, but I didn't really get into it and sparring and stuff till I was sort of 16, 17. And, and that's when I discovered fitness. Um, and I had no concept of nutrition or like how food would kind of like impact your, um, aesthetics or your performance um but i want no, all i knew is that i wanted to do something i wanted to run i wanted to play football i wanted to box i wanted to lift weights um and through exercise alone i ended up losing quite a lot of weight um and i just got super fit um and then i don't even know like even to this day what it was that made me decide but i one, I decided one day I'm going to join the army. That's what I want to do. I'm going to join the army. And <clears throat> I was unable to do it earlier because I'd had asthma. So I had to wait for like, I think it was four years to be clear of medication. 
Um, and we went through the process. And I remember that it was quite a long-winded process. And there were letters being written. My mum my even wrote a letter um, saying that, you know, why did I have to wait so long? And, and, you know, again, this is a long time ago. So I apologise if I get my dates and my times messed up. But in the end, it, it all went through and I, I actually got in. Um, and I joined the army when I was, I think I was 18. I think I was 18 when I joined the army. Um, um, and that was the Royal Artillery. And I was part of um, 93, um, which was um, Lakato Troop. Um, and alas, that wasn't meant to be. I, um, during my time, um, I developed a respiratory illness um, and I got medically discharged. <clears throat> Um, and that was the first time I'd ever really decided that's what I want to do in my life. I was like, I'm very much kind of like, if I decide I want to do something, I'm going to do it and nothing's going to stop me from achieving that goal. Um, sometimes that can be uh, detrimental to, um, my health and, and relationships, but it's, it's just in my, um, psychological gap. That's just how I am. I'm like, I'm like, I want to do this, or this is what I want. I'm going to do it no matter what. Nothing's going to stop me. Um, and then once I came out of the army, I was very much, oh, now what? Like, now what am I going to do? Because I like literally no idea. So I spent probably seven or eight years just being a bit of a bum. Like, I worked like the doors. I did a lot of... Um, like dead end kind of like agency work, um, security gigs, um, but mainly door work. I was working the doors of Exeter, um, various nightclubs and stuff. And I, I did that for a long, long time on and off. Um, and I really enjoyed that. That was quite fun. It was back in the heyday of like the whole nightclubs of like the, the late, it would have been like the tail end of the late nineties going into the early two thousands. So it was, you know, it was the thing to do, right? Like, that doesn't really happen much these days, I don't think, does it? Do people really go out anymore? Like, do people go to? <laughs> no, I think I know. I know because I, I used to when I was you know younger, and it was a, yeah. a place called Gold Diggers, and it was a oh. place where people would from all the villages around us would go drink, go dance, go try and pick up girls, and if none of those happened, then you just stab each other with broken bottles at the end of the night. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that sounds like a good night out, right? So yeah. that was that was kind of like what it was like. Um, and it was looking back on it, it was crazy to think that like every single night that I worked, I would end up having blood on my shirt or my clothes would get ripped or my earpiece wire would get broken or something. People just fought. It was just, just people would drink. And like you said, you, you get drunk and I mean, the, the the drug scene was probably start just starting to pick up, like the whole you know people doing pills and coke and stuff, and it was it was a crazy time. Man. Like thinking back on it now, you know, I I every single night that I worked, I would get into some sort of fight, um, and I loved it. It was great fun. There was a great bunch of lads. There was probably ten or twelve of us. We on the nights off when the club was not like the club was closed we'd go out as a group and we, we were all mates and it was like a group of mates that were working together um, and just having a laugh. 
And being sober and watching drunk people make asses of themselves was great fun. And then you got to have a bit of a scrap as well, you know? We so, know what was, um, well, it was funny, just to interject for a second. I remember, because there was all alcohol fueled, all the violence I saw. And I remember there was one guy, and you know, we were we were cool. Like, you know, he was like the, the town hardener, as they like to say. And he was the kind of guy he'd break his fist in a fight, and then he the next time he fought, he'd just use his elbows and still win the fight. Yeah. You know, just one of those guys. <laughs> Wiry fucker. But um and I'll never forget one day I went into the to the club and he was dancing with his shirt off up on like the, the stage part. And he's hugging me and all this stuff. I'm like, wow, he's so chill. Well, now in <laughs> hindsight, I was like, he was probably on ecstasy. But that's a kind of interesting, in, you know, view of the whole like demonization of drugs. As a firefighter, you know, we both know what alcohol does through the violence, through domestic abuse, through the, the drink driving. Yet when I went out and, you know, I did that when I was in Japan, I've seen it, you know, from the outside looking in, bunch of people dancing a shitload. And hugging, so you know, it was an interesting, you know, view of of the paradox of the one that was legal creating so much violence, and the one that was demonized and illegal, causing people yeah. to dance and hug. <laughs> so that's that's always been like a real um, a big thing for me. Um, I've never been a big drinker. I've never, you know, in my twenties, yeah, I'd go out and have a few drinks, and you know, every now and again, very very rare occasion. Um, I might have a drink, you know, at home. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't happen. But the amount of violence that I've seen attributed to alcohol, incredible, like absolutely incredible. But you see someone smoking a spliff, they don't want to fight, you know, they just want to chill out, man. And it's like, I, you know, I don't want to really get into this for the whole politics <laughs> of drugs versus alcohol, but. The, the amount of, of health related, you know, um, like and deaths attributed to alcohol. I mean, you look at, I don't know what they are, but I, I bet if you looked it up and you compared like the amount of deaths attributed to, to smoking weed compared to alcohol, uh, it would be significant. Oh yeah. You know, and, and probably, and probably ecstasy and, and that kind of stuff as well. But, you know but then you can go down the road of like well you don't really know what's in a pill and and you know because it's because it's illegal then you're buying it from sh some shady dude and like you know you don't know what's in that what it's cut with so you know i don't know i i, I yes i think that they should probably legalize cannabis and the sooner they do it the better over here um, I know there's some states over there. They got it in Florida, right? Um, I think we have the medical one here. I think they're working on it. I know Colorado and uh, I think California now. Um, yes. But yeah, but it's funny because you said about the impurities. Well, that's what happens when you legalize. You know, imagine yeah. if X was medical grade, you know? Mate, awesome. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not opposed to it. It used to be a divorce therapy drug. That's where it started. Oh, right. So really? it was in the know. medical community, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not... And then my thing is my whole stances i think addiction not social use where addiction whether it's alcohol whether it's porn gambling social media you know whatever it is is a mental health issue so if you're turning people that are addicts into criminals i think this is a horrible philosophy you know and so if we can put the power back in the medical community and help the people that are hurting with their addiction with their mental health and then you know like you said if there's a 
another recreational drug that's not going to cause me to smash a bottle and stick it in someone's face, but we're going to dance and hug instead, should that be demonized? I mean, with the, with what I've seen in all the clubs and all the raves and all the, you know, I I would rather any day of the week be in a room full of people on X than a room full of people on alcohol. Absolutely. I mean, I've worked at festivals as well, you know, and that was a real eye-opening experience. I remember the first festival that I worked at. So I was used to working in nightclubs and I, I went away and I worked um I, I can't remember which one it was now but I, I went away for a week um and it was it was great we, we were working like 12 hour shifts and then we just sleep in a tent on site um and then get up and there was nobody was fighting I mean yeah you had the occasional kind of like incident you know what I mean but it was just generally what people were like you know taking ketamine and, and ecstasy and and they were just dancing and just like everyone was just happy and it was just chilled out and it was so nice to see. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've seen, I've seen alcohol can like destroy people's lives. Um, you know, I've, I've known alcoholics and I, I've sort of grown up around um, people that have been affected by alcohol that are addicted to alcohol. And I've seen firsthand what it does to people and it's horrible. Like, you know, I hate it. And it's probably a lot of the reason why I don't drink. Um, because I, I don't, you know, I don't like the person that I am. I, I don't, you know, I don't want a lot of, a lot of my mates that, you know, most of my friends now, they, they don't go on about it anymore. But I remember for a while, it was like, oh, come out, come out, have a drink. Why don't you drink? Why don't you drink? And I was like, because I just don't, I don't want it. I don't like it. Like, it's weird because people don't, um, they just can't comprehend that like well, what do you mean you don't like it why don't you like drinking it's like the english thing to do right it's like go out and get pissed up like, well i just don't i don't like what it does to me i don't like how it affects my brain and my body i don't like how i'm not in control of myself or like i'm you know it impairs my judgment and so many different things um and and it, you don't know how you're going to feel. You don't, I don't know if I'm going to laugh, if I'm going to cry, if I'm going to get angry, if I'm going to want to fight someone or shag someone. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, I mean, I don't mind having a drink every now and again, but like the, the people that go out and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's, I, I'm not like, you know, I'm not saying, Oh, you shouldn't do it. But for me personally, the idea of going out and getting absolutely shit face drunk and like, not you know it doesn't it doesn't appeal to me i just don't it blows my mind i'm like why would you want to do that and then feel crap for like a week mm -hmm. after yeah see yeah. and i've i've always i've drank you know frequently but i hate being drunk so i have that kind of like one one or two glasses and i, I was at a, a rock festival a couple of years ago now and every time I've got drunk drunk it's been by accident whether it's a combination of not eating enough or, you know whatever and you know the series of events whatever not making excuses but I found myself like shit-faced at 45 years old at a festival and my wife and stepson walked me home and what struck me the next day wasn't oh I feel bad poor me it was if something had happened if someone had attacked my wife I wasn't yeah. just useless I was a, a liability now you know yeah, what man. I mean? So it was terrifying. And like I said, that wasn't me deliberately. I mean, I don't like being drunk, no, no. but but yeah, the the scary thing about alcohol is it can creep up on you too. And you can have one yeah, day where you can get through five, you know, four pints and you're fine. Another day, those four pints will put you on your ass. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not a fan. Don't don't get me wrong. I 
do you know what? Like on a hot day, you've got nothing on and you can just sit out in the garden with the lads and have a couple bottles of cold lager and you get that nice little fuzzy kind of feeling. That's lush, man. Like, that is awesome. But that I'm there, I'm done. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm happy. Like, I, I don't want any more. Thank you. You know, I'm good. I'll have another one. No, 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 no. Like, I am. I'm sweet. Just, I'll just chill on my two small bottles of lager. I'm, I'm good. So, yeah. Um, we've digressed massively, haven't we? I can't even remember what the original question was. Well, I've got one more thing, actually, and then we'll, we'll carry on forward. Don't worry about the original question because that's just an anchor anyway. So, <laughs> But with with you doing The Doors, did you ever ever exposed to Jeff Thompson, the guy that wrote Watch My Back? Yeah, crazily enough. Yeah, man, that's weird because um, so the guy that actually got me into door work, uh, mate of mine, Nick, I don't know, like I'm going to try and get him to listen to this, actually. Yeah. Um, he he got me into it um i remember so the way i got into door work would they i was working security at a uh oh, where was it it was virgin mega stores so like it was back when i don't know if those even exist anymore but virgin had like retail shops so like where you could buy like cds and cassettes and stuff when that was a thing um and we worked together as security and he worked at the local nightclub and um they had someone go sick um, and he rang me and he said, Oh, what are you up to tonight? Do you want to come down to the club and, and do a shift? And I was like, what? I was like, what? 18, 19, I think I must maybe even younger. I might've been 17. And, and I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, come down to work. And I'll never forget how terrified I was about working that, that night. And I turned up and I got my like, massive oversized shirt on and my bow tie and my earpiece and i spent the entire night stood in the corner shitting myself because i thought if it kicks off in here i'm not going to be able to do anything i was like 12 stone wet through um and it got to the end of the night and there was this huge punch up at the bar and there were like five or six lads all like just tearing into each other there were bottles being thrown about it was absolutely crazy. And all I remember is running into the bar with like a group of like 12 other blokes all wearing the same uniform. We're all in these shirts and just jumping on these guys and dragging them out back steps and, you know, fighting with them on the way out and choking them out. And God knows what else the things we used to do, mate. I cannot believe some of the things we used to do. But anyway, so we got it all out and I, I remember coming back in and I was panting, I had blood on my shirt and I was like, my tie, bow tie was like ripped off. And I remember looking at the head doorman and he was this big farmer guy and he must have been about six, five. He had hands like shovels, this guy. He was just a naturally like big, super freakishly strong bloke. And he just looked at me and he said, you enjoyed that bow, didn't you? And I just looked at him and grinned. And he was like, same time next week then? And I was, <laughs> I was like, yeah. And I was hooked. I was hooked. I tell you what, the first four or five years I worked in that nightclub, I would have done it for free. That's how much I enjoyed it. And I remember I'd be, I'd be at home getting ready. And, mom, and so I was still living at home at the time with my mum and dad. And I have my own bedroom, obviously, and I would be getting ready for work in the evening and I have my, my stereo on. I'd be listening to like 
limp biscuit or like whatever else it was like and i get i get myself psyched up because i was going to work to fight because i knew that you'd be going and having a scrap like one you know and it was like you know and i'd, I'd iron my shirt and i'd make sure all my stuff were like laid out on the side and i had this like proper like routine i polish my boots and i'd, I'd get myself ready and i'd turn up and the doors would open and the punters would start coming in and it, it you go you, and you'd just be waiting and it was that anticipation of waiting for the like the buzzer to go off um and then you all just pile in and it was just awesome i loved it and it was and the the girls and the the, the whole atmosphere and it was just amazing i had an amazing like five or six years of doing that i absolutely loved it man um so I was doing that alongside like these kind of crap dead end jobs that I really didn't care about. And I'd, I'd end up working till like three, four in the morning and then having to get up at like 7 a.m. the next day to, to go in and, you know, and I was always late or I'd forget something or I'd just be a bit crap, and my day, you know, and I got fired from so many jobs. But it didn't matter because I like my family were, at you know, at the nightclub, it, the club was called warehouse, warehouse and boxes. And if anyone like, if I send this link to like anyone, any of the lads that I work with, then they'll know. Um, if anyone from down in, in Devon or Exeter specifically, um, that went out in sort of the, maybe the, yeah, the, the late nineties and, and early to mid two thousands, that it was like the nightclub. It was down on the quayside. the, Queues would be stretched out all the way down the side of the quay, waiting for people to come in. You'd have 1,400 people capacity this nightclub, and, and there'd be like 10, 10, 15 lads working. And we were like brothers, and it was like a family, you know? Um, and it was crazy. It was just, looking back at it now, it was just so much fun. Um, it, I mean, it was dangerous, don't get me wrong. And I, you know, I took my fair share of beatings, <laughs> You know, like I'd come home with like a fat lip or like a, my eye would be, I remember I got hit in the face with a bottle one night. Luckily it didn't break, but it, my whole eye was closed over for about two weeks. And, but I wore it like a trophy. Do you know what I mean? It was like, I loved it. And I was doing, while I was working the doors, I was doing a lot of MMA and a lot of boxing as well, you know? So I was kind of like living that fighter's life, you know? And I, I just loved the scrap. Um, and I did that, yeah, I did that for years. And it was it was just, it was great fun. Absolutely brilliant fun. Um, now, I would never, ever go anywhere near it. I would imagine that it's very, very different. Now that there's, you have to have a license now to work the doors, you know. You, I never used to have that. And some of the best guys that I worked with on the doors had served time in prison or they were, you know, some sort of criminal. And they were best guys to have because, you know, they they just they knew how it worked. They knew how that like, you know, they fit into that lifestyle. And I don't know. I think it's changed so much. And camera phones. I mean, Jesus Christ, if, if I'd have been doing the doors and I were doing the stuff that I did then now, I'd be in prison because I did some crazy shit crazy shit that i hurt people and okay you maybe or maybe not sort of say they might have deserved it but 
I saw a lot of crazy shit as well, you know. Um, and I and but it was very much. I think back then there was still a little bit of chivalry in that someone would call you out on the front door. You wouldn't let them in. They'd say, all right, round the side then. And you'd go and have a square go with them, one-on-one, have a scrap. they come back the following week, they shake your hand and you'd let them in. Do you know what I mean? And that's how it was. And it'd be like, mate, you know, I'm really sorry for last week. You know, I'm sorry for, sorry for that. Um, I was really out of order. I really appreciate it. Do you know what I mean? And you'd let them in, shake your hand, no problems. And going back to the Jeff Thompson thing, I actually read um, the best book I read of his was Fear Know Your Enemy. I think that's what it was called. And it was all about learning how to control adrenaline um, and turn it from flight into fight. Because obviously that's the whole, yeah. And it was it was fascinating to because we've all got that kind of like someone comes up to you and they get in your face immediately get that adrenaline dump don't you of like oh shit like what am i going to do what am i going to do and it was learning how to um control that emotion and channel it into aggression when you needed it rather than just like have a massive adrenaline shit and then let your legs start like twitching and and you know you go like just start freaking out so that was yeah, and I and I I used that as like a catalyst really to sort of like learn about how to deal with people that were like that to get in your face, and it became a little bit of like a game for me. I used to enjoy that kind of like not letting you know, and I wouldn't just not let someone in because I was an ass. I I you know there was a, a legitimate reason, you know, like maybe they didn't have the right attire or. or Perhaps they were, you know, I felt they were too drunk or whatever. But as soon as they return on you, that was when I'd get that kind of like, oh, now I'm having fun. I'm going to have a little bit of fun with this person now. I'm going to like, you know, try and use what I'm like learning and, and, and apply that to the situation. And it was fascinating, you know, and everyone was different. And it was, yeah, it was really good. Um, but yeah, Jeff Thompson, absolutely incredible, mate. Like, um, but yeah, watch your back. That was the autobiography though, right? I think so, yeah. So there was another one that I read, and, and I remember because so me and my, a couple, or one of my mates, we were both smaller. I didn't even have my growth spurt till I was eighteen. So you know, right when we were around that kind of teenage, where you're going out a lot, I just felt vulnerable. And I'd done martial arts and even won trophies, but it was still like tippy tappy. You know, it wasn't yeah, you know, yeah. real combat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. I just, you know, I had that imposter syndrome the whole time. So we got right. into his work. And I remember, you know, like ask a question and then hit them straight away and all these kind of things, yeah, yeah, you know, right, engage yeah. their brain. But that's so right. fast forward, you know, literally a year ago, I got this podcast and someone mentioned his name. I was like, shit, I forgot about him. I should get him on, you know, body, a bodyguards, uh, excuse me, a, a bouncer's perspective. Well, Jeff has been on such an incredible metamorphosis. So it turns out that he had this extremely traumatic childhood. He was sexually abused. So, so violence was his manifestation of his mental ill health. So now he's this like super courageous, like transparent, um, philosopher and looking back and using his time on the door and talking about violence and, you know, owning your own trauma and growing from it and all this stuff. But it was, it was not the conversation I was expecting, but it was a thousand times better. 
Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's so weird. When you mentioned his name then, I was like, oh my God, yes, of course. It was like a very big, um, a very big name. And, and, and going back to what I said before, the guy that I worked with that got me the job that night, he got me onto him. And he had his books and he, he was a little bit older than me. Nick was a little bit older than me. Um, and he said, I, you know, you should read this book. And he, he might have even lent it to me. Um, and that was the, 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 the book about fear and adrenaline. And I was fascinated and I was, I just got hooked on it. And it was, you know, it was awesome. And an awesome time to be able to do that because I don't think that you'd be able to do that now. I don't think that you'd be able to use what he called the fence the fence where you you know you put your hand out and that was your sort of distance you gauge your distance and just tap him on the chest with your hand and that's that was like your rangefinder you know i remember that and it's, it's weird that like this is stuff from sort of like 20 years ago and i still remember it it's just so weird if you've, you've sent me down like a real kind of nostalgia trip to be honest um but i yeah it was what a what a crazy time that was and, and you think now it's with this, you know, because this, it was before social media. So there was no such thing as social media. I don't think anyone had a mobile phone. I mean, there were mobile phones, but it was only like the super rich that had them. It wasn't like every man and his dog's got one now. Um, and camera phones, obviously, as well, which is a huge thing. Um, so, yeah, saying the stuff that we used to get up to back in the day when we were working the doors there's no way you'd be because it, it seems to me like every time there's any kind of altercation someone's got their phone out filming it yeah every yeah. time yeah instead of helping stopping the fight you know they just yeah. stand there like a fucking idiot filming it instead then also i remember we had cctv but it recorded to vhs tapes so that we had our cctv on the front door and you know most times it would they would throw the first punch. But every now and again, you know, it might go a little bit wrong. And, and I remember like there were a few times where I lost my temper and um, I may have instigated it physically. Um, and the, um, the tapes would mysteriously stop recording or, or get lost. Um, you know, the management would accidentally kind of like overwrite them with something or, or, you know, they get chewed up, so there was no evidence. Now, everything now is recorded to like a hard drive, or it's, it's uploaded to cloud straight away, isn't it? And it's absolutely crazy. You can't, you know, you can't hide anymore. And I think before there was a lot of sort of like your word against theirs, you know, and the police would come down. It'd be like, you know, one drunk moron that was bleeding on the floor versus three doormen that all saw the same thing. It's like, well, what happened? Well, he swung a punch and he tripped and then he fell and hit his head on the door. And Six times. I tried, <laughs> I tried to help him up, but like every time I tried to help him, he attacked me and, you know, and I, I don't know how his tooth has come out there. I really don't. And, you know, and it was, it was, yeah. Um, but now it's, it's, it's very different. Very, very different. And um, I kind of, I, yeah, I, I don't like the direction. Well, I say the direction that we're traveling in because we're already there. Um, and, and funnily enough, I picked my son up from school last week. And the first thing he said to me was, daddy, when I'm in year four or whatever, I am allowed to take my mobile phone to school. And my son's currently six. And I thought, 
why the hell would you need a mobile phone when you're eight or nine years old? And then it struck me that when I do drop him off to school and pick him up, some of the kids in the, the higher years are walking around on phones. They've got their, they're having conversations or they're, they're, they're texting or, do, or doing Instagram or whatever. And, you know, I don't want my little boy to have access to any of that stuff because he's so innocent. I mean, he's watching YouTube and he's seeing stuff on YouTube that's questionable at the moment, but at least I kind of feel like I've got a, a bit of a, a cap on it. But once you kind of go through there into the whole social media thing, it's like a whole different ball game, isn't it? And I'm I'm genuinely terrified about how I'm going to manage it or, you know, it's going back to saying like about how my parents raised me. They didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. All they had to worry about was where I was going and where I was going to be and who I was with. Which, you know, um, growing up in a tiny little village, there wasn't really any, you know, everyone knew everybody and, and everyone, you know, knew where I was at all times. And there was that whole kind of small town mentality of, oh, yeah, well, we know where Tommy's at. He's at the park or he's at the football pitch or he's at the bus shelter with his, you know. Whereas now it's like he could be, you know, on his phone and have access to God knows what. Um, and it's it's kind of trying to manage that. Um, I don't know how people do it. I don't. I don't. So any any tips <laughs> from like any parents that have got kids that want uh, their own mobile phone? What the hell are you supposed to do with that? Because I can't. I can't not let him have one because all of his mates are going to have them, right? Yeah. Well, I I've, I went through the same thing. My son's about to turn fourteen now, so okay. I've kind of been through that. And my whole thing was where we where we moved to um he you know he were in this big neighbor this big community so the phone became a good way it was probably three three years ago so around 10 11 i think it was for me to be able to start just like your parents did trusting him so i'd say all right you can you can you can be out with these kids in the playing fields on your own but every 30 minutes i want you to check in with me and you tell me, you know, so, and it started, it was like kind of feeding out the line bit by bit by bit. Well, now, you know, he gets the bus. So I'm like, all right, you know, just text me when the bus has picked you up. And then on the way home, text me when you're getting, you know, off the bus. So again, I just have timelines. So as you know, God forbid something happens. I know where you were at least here at this time. But with the social media, I was like, no. And I've had to fight his mother because we're, we're divorced on that a little bit. But I saw an element of that narcissism creep in when she'd allowed him have Instagram for a moment or TikTok or whatever the hell it was. And he was doing all these little videos and, you know, looking for likes. And I was like, right, fuck it. We're, we're done. I don't care what she says. I'm taking off your phone. Um, and, you know, letting him have that as a tool, letting him be curious, letting him, you know, watch anime on, on YouTube and whatever that line of communication is important. And he comes to me and he asks me about stuff and stuff, you know, some stuff was a little inappropriate. I'm like, well, here's, you know, here's why this isn't good. Here's why this kid is being mean or here's what they're meaning sexually about this thing. And I think that's the big part for me is of course, shut down, you know, social, no kid needs social media. They just, they just yeah. don't. But, you no, know, yeah, but YouTube and all that stuff can absolutely be a place for them to learn. 
But I think encouraging that communication and discussion about what they're seeing, to me personally, is like the next step to transition from like the 10 year old to the, you know, the 16 year old is, I don't mind what you're watching now, but let's talk about when when you don't get something, you know, let's talk about it. And if you can maintain that, I think that's a very, very healthy next step. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, it's not too bad. So I do let him watch YouTube and he's got like, he likes there's certain YouTubers that he really likes. Um, I could probably name them. I, I, I mean, he goes on about it. He's like kind of obsessed with Minecraft right now. That's his thing. And there's certain people that will play Minecraft. Um, and I, you know, and I don't mind it because it's, it's quite wholesome, you know, and, and the, the, the ones that he watches, there's no bad language and it's very kind of like, um, it's very fun. And I, I've sort of vetted it, you know, I've, I'll sit and I'll watch a couple with him as painful as it is, um, just to kind of like get an idea of like what he's watching and what he's into. And he wants me to be into it as well. You know, it's important for him. He's like, daddy, 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 come and see this. You won't believe what like unspeakable just did or, or Preston or whatever like look, look at this map that you made on Minecraft and I'm like oh mate that's really cool and I'll sit with him for five minutes and I'll watch it but mm, it's more just for me to kind of like get like an idea of like what's going on like you know like what, what's he watching at the moment um, but he's he's still in that real innocent stage at the moment um, and I love that um, and I hate to think and like I'm, I'm not freaking out just yet, but I know it's not going to be that long before he makes that transition into like where you are with your kid now, you know, and the kind of like the hormones start changing a little bit. And, and it's like he starts sort of like gets curious about other things. And, you know, it, uh, I, you know, and I, I, I try to watch my language around him as well as, as much as possible. Sometimes I'll, I'll catch myself saying something. I'll I'll say shit, and he'll call me out on it. He's like, "Daddy," and I'm like, "Oh, sorry, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Shouldn't say that, should I? You know." And he's 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 great. He knows. Um, and um, yeah, right at the moment, he's just this beautiful age where everything is just so like it's wondrous, you know. Um, and it's just gorgeous, man. Like it's so awesome to see a human brain operate at that capacity where there's no malice and there's no hate and he's just pure and like everything's just so like everything's just like he's like a sponge and he's just soaking up all this information um and he tells me like he'll be like oh daddy daddy because he's really into astronomy as well and he'll be like oh did you know that like there's this black hole and it's like I don't know, like hundred thousand kilometers in diameter and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, mate, that's cool. Like, you know, that's really, really cool. And, um, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just lovely. It's just lovely to see, have a, like a, a human being like that. That's just so innocent and pure and that's not tarnished with all the shit in the world that we're just surrounded with and all the, the hate and the violence and war and religion and all the bullshit that make people do really fucked up stuff. And it's just this like little person that's just like, all I care about is the next like unspeakable video where 
some guys turned his like downstairs into a giant ball pool. You know, like how awesome would that be to wake up in the morning and like not have any worries or like not care about like where your next paycheck's coming from or like, you know, like you feel like you're getting fat or, or like, you know, like whatever, whatever it is that you've got in going on in the world that you're like freaking out about that you don't care about any of that stuff. All you care about is like getting the next Lego set or, you know, what, when the new episode of like whatever cartoon he's currently watching is, it's just like, I miss that. I miss not caring, you know? Yeah. Well, you said about the sponge too. I think that's a really important analogy is they, I talk about this, they're blank canvases. When you, when you think about all the nasty people in the world, they started off as toddlers. They started oh, yeah. off as kids that were wondering, you know, like looking at butterflies and playing ball, you know, kicking a ball around with kids, not caring their sexuality, skin color, religion, just that there's a ball and they're all giggling and chasing it, you know, and we do, we, we, we can take that person and make it into a kind, compassionate human or an absolute, you know, horrific, you know, just waste of skin, you know? So I think when, when you have the internet now, you have an abundance of things that will nurture them. You, my son loves those kindness and compassion videos, you know, and he loves nature. He's fascinated with wolves and all this. And he'll, like you, he'll show me uh, almost 14 years old. Dad, come and look at, you know, look at the, look what this guy did for this homeless guy, you know. And some of it, again, is like people videoing themselves doing stuff so they can get likes. But the, the core of why he likes it is because it's someone, someone being kind. So that's the thing. It's not demonizing phones, internet, anything. There are so many beautiful things that you can get through that device. It's just as a parent, how do you funnel the good things in and the bad things out? Yeah, and that's the key, right? That's like the the, the golden the golden key. <laughs> it's like and I don't think there is a way. You've just kinda of, kinda of do your best and hope that like you do a good job and that like they're not gonna um sort of go down the wrong path. Um, and then if they do start to go down the wrong path, then I guess you, it's your job to try and guide them back. I don't know. But right now I'm just trying to enjoy how he is and not worry too much about it. Um, and that's why I love spending time with him because it's like in my day to day is, you know, um, you know, like generally like work is, is pretty cool, but like you do see some, you know, pretty gnarly stuff. Um, but like when I'm with him, it's like an opportunity for me to just switch off from everything and just be in his world for a little bit, you know, that just kind of that world of just wonder and, and, and innocence. And it's just like that for me right now, this time in my life is like really important. I think that's where I have the balance of like going from the like potentially the crazy stuff and then like and then going like completely the other way and and just being a six-year-old again you know and building lego and watching cartoons um and i love doing that stuff it's awesome to be able to do that it's, it's a great excuse as well to be able to go out and buy like a, a massive nerf gun and be like well no nah, i got it for my kid <laughs> <laughs> exactly mine's like i said mine's almost 14 he still loves lego like his yeah. whole room is covered in, in but now he's taken those sets and he's, you know, turned it around and adapted it. Oh, okay. and, you know, these different, you know, creations. Uh, I think that's what's good about Minecraft. There is that innovation side, that creativity. 
But um, but yeah, you know, and then that carries over. And I think, as you said, you're nurturing them, but they're bringing us back because sometimes the world we see as first responders is is pretty horrific, and our our echo chamber can be quite traumatic at times. So coming back to just being present with your child and and leaving all that stuff at the firehouse and you know being there while he shows you his you know space unicorn horse badger that he just made <laughs> you know is yeah. is uh is yeah it's it's and i it's, think it's so know, healing that's yeah, awesome and I, I, I thing is as well and i don't know about you but like sometimes you get that guilt of like when you're tired and like I'm just like, oh, dude, I just want to sit. I just want to chill. I just want to sit down and, and do nothing. And like, he'll be watching something on TV and it'll be a bit too loud. And he's like, daddy, 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 watch this, watch this. And I'm like, oh, not right now, not right now. And then and then it'll be a little bit later and I'll feel, I'll get that guilt. I'll get that like, oh, I should have made the time. I should have made the time. And I should have done it. And I don't think I'm like, you know, we can't be 100% on it all the time though, right? And like, sometimes you've got to give yourself a little bit of a break and say, I am tired. I have been working hard. I've not been sleeping like very well recently. I need a little bit of downtime. And then it's like, I've got to like look after this kind of like little boy and, and, and that. Um, so yeah. Um, but there are times where I'll just like afterwards, I'll just be like, I'm like, not now, mate, not now. And then, you know, he'll go to sleep. I'll get him to sleep and I'll come down, I'll sit downstairs and I'll just think, oh man, I, I shouldn't have done that. Like, I should have just give him that time. Just give him that like couple of minutes. Um, but it's hard, isn't it? It's, it's so hard, like juggling life. Life's, you know, it's, it's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I've just recently had the same discussion, like the last two interviews I did as well. And I think that is it, that guilt. Because I honestly think that the the firefighters i know because obviously that's the the profession that i actually worked in are some of the best you know mothers and fathers that i know you know inherently but this job also works against it you know and it pulls us away from our family and when we come back sometimes we're just shot and i I know exactly what you're talking about that guilt and it's like sometimes you just have to sleep just have to you know have that time to decompress but what i would do is then seek out and be like hey you know, yesterday I said I couldn't do this thing. Well, I've slept now. You know, let's let's go, let's go to the park. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. So that then, the, you're kind of acknowledging that you weren't able to spend time with them, but then you're kind of making it up without, you know, again without feeling guilty, but just they they gave up having a dad for 24 hours. You know, every yeah. third day. So it's up to us to kind of yeah, yeah, make yeah. that quality time when you're together. Like really be together. Yeah. No, I agree, man. So you pretty much led us through up to the bouncing years. So walk me through from there. Um, uh, yeah, if there are any significant events between that and and the fire service um, and then your journey into yeah. no, I mean, I I sort of it kind of bled over a little bit. So um, I joined the brigade back in. So I've been in eleven years now, um, and I was kind of doing the door work for the maybe the first year and a half of it um and i was it, it was sort of like i was still getting used to the transition of um not just working nights all the time but obviously doing both was was killing me um and we had a, a particularly nasty incident just before i joined the brigade and uh, got into a fight 
um, at one of the nightclubs I was working in and, and one of the guys got really badly hurt. Um, it got, it actually went to court. Um, I was looking at potentially a GBH charge. Um, it was a bit touch and go for a little while. Um, and I was, I was a bit worried about it to be honest with you. Um, but in the end, it all kind of, I won't go into all the details, but in the end, it, it kind of got thrown out. There wasn't enough evidence. And, and I think, to be honest, the way the police looked at it was that he kind of deserved it in not so many words, um, which he did. It was it was self-defense. And um, yeah, so we won't say any more than that. But um, and that was kind of it for me. I, I thought, you know what, like i don't know if I want to live this life anymore. It's potentially something could have gone really wrong there. And, you know, I could have ended up in prison. So I'm glad I, I decided that was, and that was kind of it. Um, I left the club that I was working at at the time after that, because I wasn't really, they didn't really protect me. They, they tried to throw me under the bus of it. And it, I, I kind of had enough that side of things so I started doing like little bits and pieces but my love for it had gone um and I think we'd already transitioned into this new generation that we're in now where the chivalry had gone the respect had gone it was licenses um you had to have a license to do it a lot of guys that wanted to do it weren't able to anymore I was working shifts with people I wasn't particularly happy working with I felt that they weren't very safe um to be working with I didn't feel safe being with them um and you know I don't want to offend anyone but if you look at I don't know what it's like over there in the states but where especially where I live if you look around at some of the guys working the doors now and you got to kind of got a laugh <laughs> you know it's it's almost embarrassing, um, but you know they need the staff, right? So it's it's just these big companies. It's just numbers now. They don't, you know. Whereas it used to back in the day, it was like wanted to work the doors at a decent nightclub. You had to kind of prove yourself, you know. Um, and if you if you didn't cut it, then you wouldn't be able to do it. But I find now it's just like you know, if you're willing to take I don't know whatever you get eight pound an hour or nine pound an hour to you know, work in a nightclub, they'll employ you to do it. It doesn't matter if you've got any kind of experience or, or you know, hand-to-hand skills or anything. It doesn't seem to matter. So that, um, it just, yeah, I just lost my way with it. And um, the shifts became less frequent. I started making excuses not to go in. Um, I was getting called out. You know, we'd be out all night and then pick up a shout in the day, potentially. And then I'd be too tired. I didn't want to, I just didn't want to do it. I, I just had enough. Um, and I started falling in love with the service. Um, and in the end, I, I can't remember what it was exactly, the, the exact time frame or like what it was. But I, I just, I got to a point where I was like, you know, I know what it was. My license has expired. So I got, I had to get a door license and I did that and it was, it lasts for however long. And I remember it was coming to the end and I was like, do you know what? I'm not going to renew it. Um, and it wasn't long after that, that I had my little boy. So it all kind of tied into the whole, like, well, I don't, 
you know, I can't really do this. Can't really raise a baby, um, with my wife at the time. Um, it just didn't seem like it was going to work. So yeah, I, I, I just chin that off. Um, and then I was, yeah, just working. I was just working the brigade. I, I was just retained to start with. I was just doing the, the on-call hours. Um, and it wasn't very long into that that I ended up getting um, the job that I'm doing now as a whole-time role as an area support technician. Um, and that's sort of, so that's what I'm doing now. And I'm, I'm doing that. So I'm working for the service full-time. Um, and then I'm doing, I'm operational when I'm not doing that. So I've got like a dual contract. So I'm like kind of working two jobs, but for the same organization, it works really well for me. So, so tell me about that. So what, what does that role entail? So you're, you're running calls and part of it. Yeah. So normally if you're whole time firefighter over here, um, you do a two, two, four, um, contract, which basically means you do two days, two nights, and then you have four days off. Um, the way my contract works is that I work Monday to Friday on like a flexi kind of contract, um, working in operational support. Um, and that's kind of like nine to five, but the, the hours are flexible. So I do like seven till four or whatever. And then in the evenings, or if I'm not doing that for a day, if I've, if I've got time off from my day, then I'll do um fire operational firefighting so i do that when i and then i just sort of fit the childcare thing in around it i have my little boy two or three times a week so um no there's not a lot of free time but i don't you know i get i get enough time to do my training see my little boy and and do all my work and and that's all the three boxes ticked for me and i'm happy you know now, with a technician, are you doing things like SCBAs or deliveries, or what? What does that role look like? Yeah, so it's it's. I look after um, about fourteen different stations in the area. So I'm um, attached to East Division, um, and I just basically travel around between the stations, making sure the all the operational equipment is up to scratch. Um, if any repairs need, depending on what it is, is, is collecting it, taking it to the relevant department. Um, if it's something that I'm trained to fix myself, then I'll, I'll do it on site. Um, but it's, um, managing all of the equipment, all of the oxygen cylinders, breathing apparatus cylinders, um, fire extinguishers, like literally everything that you find on a fire appliance, basically. Um, and that's my, that's my task is to make sure that all of the, we call them pumps, all of the fire engines, on the stations i've got all the kit that they need to go out and so the guys can do the job um safely beautiful you're a good person to ask this question again um i throw this out quite a bit um here in the u.s if you want to be hated by the majority you bring up the the subject of our helmets and you say okay. that why are we not progressing technologically and, you know, yeah. then you get told, well, it's traditional, this stuff. I, I hold that as symbolism for a lack of progress. And in that, and that's just like a, you know, the, the sacrificial lamb, if you like. To me, tra- tradition is a brotherhood. It's the fitness. It's the co- kindness and compassion. It's the high level of training. That's a tradition of the fire service. The other things are just tools and clothes. Um, but each to their own. I'm at the fire service now. Really, you know, I don't have no skin in the game as far as choice of protection. But from the outside looking in, what really irks me is then you get a belittling of 
the European fire helmet. Yet every person I get on the show that actually has that, it sounds so much better. And every, you know, like I just had a a uh, um, Vietnam vet on, and he was yeah. like, "Well, we don't wear tin helmets, you know, in, in you know the Delta Force now, you know, when we have the latest right. gear." So yeah, yeah, cool. When I have someone who actually knows, rather than me just throwing my opinion around, I've never had to wear you know a european helmet in a structure fire um i had an irish firefighter they actually switched to it about three years ago so we had a very interesting perspective from the old kind of turtle shell helmet to yeah. the one you guys wear but you're on the tech side as well so just tell me what you know what your thoughts are on that helmet versus if you had one prior to that or if you heard about the, the so, old ones well since i've been in we've had two changes so we had the old um the like the old like you said the old turtle shell ones um they were phased out when i joined and we went to what was called a cromwell helmet which was like a big kind of like went all the way over all the way around at least um more like a sort of fighter pilots sort of thing you know and it had like a pull down visor on it and and whatnot but they were like they were okay but they were really heavy um and they they, uh, you know, if you had to wear one for a long time, then it kind of, you know, it, 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 they weren't super comfortable. Um, in how long ago now? I don't know how long we've had the new ones, but we've recently just upgraded to these new ones, um, maybe two or three years ago, and they are proper Gucci. So they're <laughs> light, like lightweight, dual visors. You got like an eye protection thing that you can pop down. But over the top of that, you've got the full face visor as well. It's got an LED torch, which is on the top of it as well, which has got like multiple settings. Um, it's super lightweight. It's super comfortable. Um, they're pretty much bulletproof. Um, and they're awesome. They're a really, really good bit of kit. Um, even going from the one that we had before. So <clears throat> I don't know, like the ones that, are they still using those where you are then? Those real old kind of fashioned. Yeah. So they, and the thing is, wow. I, I also had a perspective where I worked for four different departments. So I had the, you know, what they call the East Coast, the, the leather helmet. Actually, my, my, my last one was like a mock leather helmet, but exactly the same shape leather. I mean, excuse me, it was more of a plastic, but it was super heavy. Um, yeah. you know, super cumbersome. You couldn't look up because the back mm. hits your bottle and everyone, yeah, sure. everyone fucking takes it off when there's any sort of confined space or, you know, wreck or anything. So then it ends up on top of the car. So now you have no helmet protection at all. All the special operations people have a smaller helmet for all that stuff. You know what I mean? So there's, there's all these, these obvious things, but, um, but yeah, I, my favorite one was the West Coast, which was still kind of like a, turtle shell one but a small version that would double as a wildland helmet and when i came back to the east coast with the big one i kept fucking hitting the back of my helmet on everything getting caught because i was used to this smaller profile so to me again not only that but also do you have radio communication in the helmet too have i got that right no so we again this is something new like so the ba sets um we've recently upgraded those as well um but a couple of years ago we've gone spy like we've got um into spyro sets We've got a thing now called Spyrocom, which is um, it's like a, a headset built into the breathing apparatus mask. Um, and they're really nice, really, really cool, really, really good. Um, and like, but obviously, but, and before that, it was just handheld comms, like, you know, so you just had your handheld radios. And it's crazy to think that it's taken so long just to get that in mask 
comms. Um, and it's game changing. It's unbelievable. When you're wearing with like, when your oppo is in there with you and you can literally just talk to each other, like, you know, it's, it's so clear. Um, whereas before you're like sort of trying to shout at each other and, um, yeah, so much better. So, so much better. So we are, you know, we are moving with the times. We have got some like really nice kit, um, in the, in the service that I'm in at least. Um, um, yeah, I, I think we're well looked after with regards to sort of like tech. Now, what um, about snapping, as- snapping your mask in? Um, am I right in thinking that you can mask up without even taking your helmet off? So what's that? Say that again, sorry. C- can you put your mask on while your helmet's already on? No. No? No. Okay. No. So like the, the straps have to go, it kind of like you put the mask on and then like the rubber straps have to go behind your head. So you pull it up and over the back of your head and then you've got like five points that you have to tighten up. So two at the bottom, two at the top, and then one right at the center at the top. So yeah, you, you can't, although we've just been given, although I've not actually had chance to use one in anger yet, um, something called a fire hood, which is more for like uh, casualty evac. Um, and they're by a company called Draeger. Um, and the idea is it's, it's kind of like a rebreather, but you can put it over the top of the casualty's head. Um, and then that allows them to breathe in a, uh, irrespirable atmosphere. So, but I've not, we've not actually had chance to, to use one yet. Yeah. I've seen those um, as well, but I could have sworn one, one of the, the latest helmets, you actually snapped the mask right to the helmet. So you didn't even have to oh, take it out. Cool. So I don't know if that was MSA well, or Draeger or one of the, the different not models. Sure, but- yeah, that sounds really nice. Yeah. No, we've um, no, we still have still have to take your helmet off. Uh, mask goes on, flash hood goes on over the top, and then your helmet. Yeah, so that's the same as us. <coughs> yeah. Brilliant. So, like I said, I mean, my whole thing is just educating. You know what I mean? I mm. I know the only thing that pisses me off is when people belittle what I see as a much better helmet. Like, you want to have your helmet? Yeah. That's fine, but you just acknowledge that you've chosen a worse helmet. You know? But yeah, to- I I mean the the amount of sort of like the. I'd say the comfort and protection from the ones that we're using at the moment compared to the old ones, unbelievable. And that's mad to think that you guys over there, they're still using those old turtle shell ones, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, and the amount of protection they give you are kind of little. Yeah. Well, the yeah. other thing as well is, you know, it, there's this whole thing about it's for them, meaning, you know, we're, we're rescuing people from homes. So why you would choose a shittier version you know, that's not going to make you as good as your job to me tells me that you're more worried about how you look than actually being able to do your job. And it's a, it's a bitter pill to swallow, but I mean, it's the truth. Yeah. I mean that or money, right. Potentially, but I mean, you know, you could talk about budgets and, and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, we, we've been having cuts, you know, the whole time I've been every year that there's a budget cut, but we still somehow managed to sort of get the nice kit. You know, So yeah, because that's what allows us to do our job. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I I think, I mean, we've had the, I think it's MSA is the only one that's kind of found some traction here. And I really don't think there's much difference between them and, and the other style. You know, if you want the fancy leather, um, you know, old, old school one of the 1930s that people still yeah. <laughs> want to, um, yeah. you know, then, then I honestly don't think there's much difference in price anyway. So, Probably you know, not. but I mean, they're beautiful and they're part of our history and they yeah. look great on the office wall. Yeah. But, yeah. But um, you know, I think that we're getting to the point now where it's it's 
ego getting in the way and you know at yeah, some point someone's got to pull the trigger and and be the one to lead and say look this is just better you know, than yeah so but i mean again yeah. i'm i'm out now people you know sure. it's a personal choice but it's always important to hear your guys your guys's story because it's one thing making memes belittling this but we need to hear for the people actually wearing them say oh, actually no they're better so no it's also i i mean yeah the the, the new the new lids that we've got uh, absolutely brilliant like really really good um like i said super comfy um they're like they're like really really lightweight as well and um yeah you can wear it wear it all day and it just it is whereas the ones before so like you said when you tip your head back and you, you bang it on your cylinders you tip your head forward and it almost fell off because it was so heavy you know and you don't have that and it just fits so nicely it's um yeah good bit of kit but i think maybe someone needs to trial it over there just you know get a get a department to say like well we'll just try all these for like six months or whatever and then that's what you need to do right and then the guys will be like oh actually these are pretty good mm-hmm. yeah um and, you know and then when, once you've kind of that's what we do over here they'll, they'll send all the kit down to like the training schools and stuff and then all the instructors like use all the kit for like six months and they decide whether or not it's any good or not you know they're like yeah actually this is like that was with the um the new comms we got on the on the BA set, so we're like, actually, these are really good. And yep. then they, they then you go down to the training school, and you know they get you to use it, um, get confident with that, and then it's like, you know, get all the guys to realise, yeah, it's really good. Then they roll it out to all the stations. Yeah, well, exactly. You go through claps, mazes, and things like that. You know, I'm sure you'd be like, okay, this is pretty yeah. awesome because I used to have to take yeah. my helmet off to get through this hole, and now I can just slide yeah, right through. Spaces, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's so much better now. Yeah, so much better. Yeah, and even actually another one I remember. It used to be a real pain in the ass. You have you know the Kaiser sled they use in the combat challenge, where you're bent over using the hammer hitting. Oh the, yeah. The, see that was another move. I remember people's helmets would come off all the time. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so, yeah. You know if you're on a roof and you keep losing your helmet and whether you're cutting or swinging an axe, so it's not a good place to lose your helmet. No. Especially if you, no, you if you nail a toddler on the ground with your helmet that came off. The- <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that go down very well. Wouldn't it? <laughs> Well, thank you for that perspective, though. I mean, like I said, to me, it's just about learning from people who know. Simple as it. Having the humility to ask the people who actually are walking the walk. And you guys obviously are doing that. Paris, um, in Pompier, is it Pompier de Paris? You know, the Paris firefighters, they all wear the, yeah, yeah. the silver version of what you're wearing. So, yes. And I, I would say they're a pretty well-respected fire department. Yeah, definitely. So with you going from working the door to the fire service, it seems to me like there's there's an element of, even though you were kind of like a, a lifeguard of nightclubs in a way, so there was a kind of compassion element. You know, obviously your tools were still um, a, a version of violence, whether it was a simple grappling or whether it was more than that. Now you you're reactive to people's worst days in the fire service, and there's a lot more fixing a problem what was that like for you as far as the the shift did you find it more rewarding once you once you started uh riding the yeah, fire engine i i mean to be honest like i said the, the love for the, the work had kind of gone at this point anyway right so and I, I was a little bit older and i'd kind of done i felt like i was like i was done with the whole like just scrapping in the street and and uh, i I didn't want to live that life anymore, you know, and I'd, I'd met a girl and I'd settled down and, um, you know, we were going to get married and buy a house and all this sort of stuff. And I kind of thought, well, 
you know, I'm going to be 30 in a minute and this is at the time and I need to sort of like sort my life out. I can't just work the doors and just like fight for the rest of my life, you know, because it's, it's not, that's not going to pay the bills and it's not a sustainable life to have. I don't, you know, I didn't want to be that like that 50 year old guy that's still working, <laughs> like, you know, no disrespect to him, but everyone knows that older dude that's like worked the doors his entire life and it's all he knows. And, you know, fair play if that's what you want to do. But I didn't, I'd, I'd made that decision. Actually, no, I want to do something else now. And, um, yeah, I just kind of just fell into the fire service. It wasn't even something that I had even considered. It was just, I was in the right place at the right time. And there's literally, it was, that is, is it. I was just at a wedding and, um, I was chatting to this guy and he got me to come down to the station one night and, and chat to the watch manager um, and the next thing I know, my, you know, my papers are in the post and I'm down at training school and it's like, I'm, I'm in, and it was crazy really. Um, I never even, it wasn't like, Oh, I, this is what I want to do. This is always what I, it was never, never even crossed my mind. So, um, the transition, yeah, I don't know, really not, not, in, not particularly difficult. Um, I just kind of went with it. I just kind of got like a, it's obviously like learning lots of new skills, learning um, how to use all the equipment. Um, yeah, it was, it was, well, I didn't, I didn't find it a particularly challenging transition. I don't think it just kind of, it felt kind of natural to me. Um, and it, yeah, I just sort of fit. I, I felt like I fit it quite well. I fit the role quite well and it, it was quite a well suited job for me. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I was like, I'm doing something that I enjoy, like, and it's something I actually feel like I'm making a difference now rather than like ruining someone's night potentially, you know, it's like I could actually save a life or, or whatever. And it was, yeah, pretty cool. Um, and I still love it. I still love it now. I, you know, 11 years on, I, I still feel like I'm learning, always learning a new skill or I'm, learning um about something you know whatever whatever incident related um thing it might be um there's always something to learn you're always learning and that's what i love about it there's always another like you you can be good at something do you know what i mean but then it's like oh now i want to be really good at that or i want to be really good at that and it's um the the knowledge that you can sort of soak up from like other people and going out on jobs and um it's limitless it just it just goes on and on and on and it's like i don't think you can ever be an expert at it i think it's something that you can you can constantly evolve with um and it's it's always changing as well the policies are always changing they're always coming out of new ways to um like the, the firefighting school um like the BA school, they're always coming up with new ways and they're changing ways. Oh, th this is like, you know, short pulsing. We're going to put a short pulse above the door before you go in. Or before that, it was like you paint like a smiley face on the door before you go in. And it's like every year we get a new recruit <clears throat> comes down to our station and that they'll come back to the station. They'll be like, oh, we got taught this way, you know, and then it kind of cascades down that way as well. So that's, I find that really interesting. Um, you know, like different ways of pitching the ladder. It's like the, the words of command will change or, um, 
the number of people that will operate the extending the ladder that's changed recently on one of the pitches it's like now you need two people to extend it's you know so it's it's constantly changing it's constantly evolving there's always new things to learn and it doesn't matter what if it's um rtc so like car related incidents if it's compartment firefighting if it's water rescue if it's animal rescue railways airplane like do you know what i mean it, it's there's so much then there's so much so many different things it's so varied but then there's so much within each thing as well so um yeah i love that it's i'm, I'm never gonna feel like i'm like an expert at it i'm always like willing to learn and, and i always want to be better yeah well we, i mean we are a you know, jack of all trades master of none it's, i'm always yeah. i'm always a little cautious when someone tells me they're an expert in whatever in the fire service because you know yeah, i mean there are definitely some some you know incredibly brilliant people that are, are much stronger in some areas but i think you know the the best leaders that we see are the the guys that have been on 30 years and are still like you said that new guy walks in you know they'll ask them what you know what have you learned what's new you know and i think that that kind of humility is is what the fire service and you know police and all those professions are about and the moment you think that you're an expert you know just hand in your badge and <laughs> go 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 move I on agree. to the next thing definitely yeah this I, I i love how um like for example i'm doing my um in july actually so in about a month's time i'm going down to stc which is a training school in plymouth and uh, to do um we call it ics um basically it means that i can be the officer in charge of an incident incident so command system take, yeah so i can i can take the fire engine out with the guys on it and i will be in charge of that crew and that fire engine and the incident and that in itself is like a whole new thing like i'm having to learn all this new shit um and it's intense there's a lot to it um and I'm really enjoying it because it's a whole new challenge. Do you know what I mean? It's like, like I said, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm an expert at all as a firefighter, but like the next step naturally for me was to do, you know, be an officer in charge. So I've, I've pursued that for a little while <clears throat> um, and it's finally come into fruition. So um, I'm really looking forward to doing that. Um, and for some reason, someone, someone somewhere decided it would be a good idea to to allow me to be in charge of a group of people, which is insane, but um, <laughs> you know, um, I'm willing to take that challenge. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Well, I had a guy from Dublin Fire who it was very interesting because way before we have, I had the the moment of arrogance where I assumed that Dublin had copied the US model. Actually, it was a complete opposite. Dublin's been doing the EMS and fire combined since I think it was the end of the 18th century or 1800. Excuse me. Um, which is, you know, mind blowing. So what level of EMS do you guys have? Are you, are you trained in, in a version of that? And do you have, um, ambulance companies that you run with? Um, so we've got, we got, what do we call it now? It changes all the time, but it's called, we call it casualty care at the moment. And it's very basic paramedic skills. So it's CPR. Um, you can use a defib, um, and like a variety of like a, the bitsy pieces you get in a med kit. Um, you know, stabilization, obviously like um, oh, just a, a 
really just like awareness of spinal or like head trauma, um, <clears throat> how to like manage a casualty if, if they're suspected to have spinal or, or head trauma, um, burns obviously as well. Uh, but that's kind of it. And it is very kind of basic. It's more sort of like, I'd say it was like, you know, like the first aid course that you might do at work. Um, if you worked in an office, it's kind of that, but a, like maybe a couple of steps up. So we don't really do all that much. It's it's enough to stabilize someone and wait for the medics to arrive, basically. Okay. Um, and who's your medics? We, um, so we are with, um, that's the, that'll be our lot is uh, Southwest Ambulance Service. Um, and they are on their ass at the moment. So with like the NHS in general, but we've been out to jobs and we've waited over an hour for an ambulance before. Um, and that's not rare for that to happen. That, that's it. That does tend to happen quite often. There just aren't any around at the time. Um, I've actually heard videos, um, com- like conversations and stuff and recordings of our fire control <clears throat> actually having a conversation with, um, somebody in the ambulance control trying to get an ambulance to an incident, but they are like, they're taking them through the whole, the entire process, like asking all the questions, you know, about, and it's like, nah, we just need an ambulance. Um, so the system is flawed. Um, there's something seriously wrong over here, um, with that. And I guess it just comes down to funding. Um, but the NHS are massively understaffed. Um, there aren't enough, you know, to, to cope with the demand that we've got currently. There just isn't enough. Um, there's not enough ambulances. There's not enough personnel. Um, and I've seen it countless times where we've made up for, um, a medic and we're waiting 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes plus for them to arrive. Um, and what can you do? You know, like as a, as a firefighter on on scene, um, you just got to d- do your best with the limited knowledge that we have of casualty care. That's all we can do is just try and stabilize them. Um, obviously, if it's like mega mega serious, if we we I've been out to stuff before um, where we've had to make up for like air ambulance, you know. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been out to quite a few jobs where we've waited a, a really really long time. Um, and that's never good. Well, speaking of that, so obviously I grew up, you know, around the national health myself as a kid, yeah. you know, all the way through to 27. Um, I watched my grandfather, who was 99 and riddled with cancer, get the most amazing care via the yeah. NHS. He had Bupa for years and they basically priced him out. So when he finally was right, at a point yeah. where he was going to use it, he had already dropped his coverage because he just couldn't afford it. Um, and it was amazing. So I am such a proponent of the NHS, the fully funded, fully staffed NHS. But I've watched as I grew up, and it was you and I were kids watching the fire service go on strike because they weren't getting paid, watching the NHS get cut and cut and cut. So it's an interesting perspective hearing from the ambulance side, but also to me, and please tell me, James, you're completely fucking wrong if if I'm wrong. But to me, from the outside looking in, when COVID hit the UK and people were struggling, it seemed to me that was just exposing the fact that the NHS had been cut 
and cut to the point where they were on a skeleton crew that any any kind of significant disease accident whatever was going to overwhelm them and and the response seemed to be well let's get outside and just clap that'll help yeah so tell tell me your perspective of that yeah um i mean i don't i don't i'm not one for like getting involved in politics i try to avoid that kind of stuff as much as possible um i'm not i don't bury my head in the sand but I, i try not to sort of voice my opinion on on a lot of it um but i do agree with you with regards to what I saw here um, with COVID and stuff. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. Um, there was, <laughs> I mean, there was no way we were ever going to cope with it with with the amount of with the influx and stuff. And then obviously they would uh, loosen the restrictions somewhat. And then you'd get that kind of second wave and, and it just all go again. And um, there were some decisions that were made. Um, and again, I, I don't like getting involved in politics or pointing fingers or, or blaming. I'm not saying that a different government would have done better because, you know, it, it was unprecedented. Um, but some of the decisions had uh, a lot of us shaking our heads um the the yeah the the clap for the nhs thing um that was a bit of a joke i can't really understand um but that's so british isn't it that has to be the most british thing ever it's like at seven o'clock everyone's going to stand outside and clap and um that's going to make that's going to make it better um but yeah i'm hoping that we are on the other side of it now we're coming out the other side. We're looking at, uh, I believe it was the 21st of June. Um, all the restrictions are going to be lifted. And um, hopefully things are going to go back to normal. We're not going to have to wear masks. And um, Yeah, but it's been it, it's been a tough 12 months. I'm not going to lie. It's been, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really weird. But watching, <clears throat> yeah, some of the, the tier systems and, and all of that being put into place. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say too much. But. No, but you see, but it's interesting because when we have this discussion, people say, well, I don't want to talk about politics. And mm. to me, we're not talking about politics. We're talking about human lives. And whether it's a human bleeding out because the nearest ambulance is 60 minutes away or whether it's someone not get, being able to get the ER because there's so much panic being caused because of information management or mismanagement that chest pains and strokes are staying at home and then they're fucking dying. So to me, as soon as we bring politics into vaccinations or masks or whatever, you just negate. It's just like the school shootings and these assholes start talking about guns or no guns. And these poor children just went through this horrific event and nothing gets changed. You know what I mean? So to me, these conversations need to be had Otherwise, we're going to come out the other side and nothing is going to be taken from it. And if we've learned one damn thing, the British need to drop this whole privatization bullshit and put money back into the NHS like it was intended to back in the 70s and be what I consider the premier healthcare system on the planet. We all chip in. No one has to freaking pay a bill when they when they get ill, get hit by a car, whatever it is. We take care of our own. And then we also address things like 9 and 9 abuse and, you know, some of these things that have 
have kind of festered out of this whole thing as well. But, you know, underlying health is another one. If we come out of this and we don't talk about the obesity epidemic, the, the addiction epidemic, all these things, then shame on us. All those people that died, they died for fucking nothing because you haven't learned a damn thing. So Absolutely. as soon as we bring politics in, we, we negate these whole conversations. So I love it when, you know, when I get these perspectives, because then we can get this global global story of these men and women that were on the ground actually responding to these and we other human beings on planet earth can learn and hopefully get angry enough to start demanding change and you know if if these people that call themselves leaders had no business being there then we need to look at the way that we elect people too yeah but then i mean that whole system seems kind of fucked as well right exactly i i mean who who's in if you want a real go down a real conspiracist you know it's like who's really in charge you know like are these are these politicians really in charge are they the ones that are making the decisions because it seems to me like they're just like the face and then there's people behind them that i mean boris johnson right boris johnson now i don't know anything about politics i'd stay well away from all of it i don't i wouldn't be able to tell you who the like leader of the Labour Party is I'm that far removed right but Boris Johnson like how the fuck is that man in charge of a country well look what we just well, I mean look at our last I'll say oh, six yeah, years yeah. so no one gets butter you know both sides yeah. you know if if you're churning out the same kind of person I always say this whether they're wearing a red tie or a blue tie or uh, you know a, 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 a scarf if it's a female leader if it's the same kind of person you're seeing there, we're seeing here, absolutely, the the system is broken. Like I said, if you if you've got a turd factory and you're expecting cupcakes, you you're, you're you know deluded. So if our system keeps churning out people who are horrible leaders, we need to we need to reinvent the way that we do it so that we can get the great leaders that everyone listening knows that are out there that never ever get an opportunity to be a prime minister or a president. And then you got to wonder, like, why is that though? You know, who's someone controlling that as well? And, and yeah, well, people get rich. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. we know that I mean, lobby, you go, lobbyists. Right? You know, people are getting there rich because of laws so being made to protect their interests. And so it's so it comes down to money, doesn't it? Yeah, and you know, that's again, again our again, money. It comes down to money. Taxpayers' yeah. Yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's <laughs> back down to us. We're the base of the pyramid, you know. So educated and angry, we we gotta we gotta say enough is enough. And if you know if our loved ones are bleeding to death or you know dying of a heart attack because our ambulances you know aren't able to get to them because they're understaffed, the most basal thing in any country is you know health. And you know, over here we've got a seventy percent overweight or obese epidemic, you know, and there's violence on our streets. And the way we've done it obviously isn't working. So we have to freaking control all delete and and find find a different way. And and to me, look around the world, which countries seem to have a better system? Why don't we try and do a version of what they're doing and how they elect leaders? Because, you know, you take someone like New Zealand, obviously their prime minister seems to be pretty well respected during this, you know. So how did they find her? How did she get to the front? Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, but, I th- yeah, I mean, I agree with you completely. I think something needs to change. Um, how you do that? <laughs> Million-dollar question, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. Yeah. But at least now, here's what's beautiful, though. This medium, and I'm, I'm you know, pseudo late to the party when it comes to podcasts it's obviously a lot of people that that like joe rogan and tim ferris and um you know some others that are, that i love listening to that were blazing the trail but 
this removes the filters. This removes the, you know, you can have a conversation with someone and just put it out there and everyone can hear. So the more of, you know, these conversations, the more documentaries, the more, you know, gritty news stations that emerge, you know, through YouTube, whatever it is, the more, you know, we as a, as a culture are going to get educated. But up till, you know, when we were kids, we were fed whatever they wanted us to hear. And yeah, I think oh, yeah. there was no, Absolutely. you know, most people were just feeding us good stuff. But of course, you know, there was a lot of um, a lot of censorship of what actually got to the people, especially here in the US. So I find I it very happens. refreshing. I think that happens a lot over here, right, as well. Like we've, uh, I mean, I don't watch the news. I don't, I don't look at newspapers because it's all bullshit. It's, and I, I'm just, I'm tired of seeing Every time you turn the TV on and see, watch the news, it's something negative. There's there's never a positive story. It's like there's a oh there's a war happening over here, or these you know these people died today, or um, this is happening, or that's happening, and it's it, you know the world's falling apart, everything's fucking burning, like it's going to shit. And it's the same in the newspapers. It's like oh this person you know is done this thing or like whatever you know and it's just like it's just constant like hounding people or companies or whatever and it just i'm just tired of it i'm just not interested and it blows my mind how many people tune into that stuff and take it as gospel you know well i read it in the newspaper so it must be true you know or i saw it on the tv they said it on the news this thing that happened it's like well and it's like nah like <clears throat> I don't know. That's just me personally, though. I'm I'm very kind of like switched off from all of that. Yeah, I, I hate all of that stuff. I just, you know, and I, I think, and I know I've I complain about um, the generation that we're currently in and the social media generation, but the big positive for me about it is that I can select what I like the information that is available to me. Like I can choose what I see and what I don't see. So like in Instagram, like a very filtered level is kind of like, I can choose who I follow and who I don't follow or, you know, and, and that the information that I get from those people. So I don't have to turn on channel four and or BBC or whatever and watch the, the news from the BBC telling me stories about stuff that I don't care about. You know, I can, I can follow an individual or organization on Instagram and get information about something I do care about and I am passionate about. Yeah. So that's, that's a massive positive. Absolutely. Well, when what I've seen as well, cause I do the same thing, you know, my, my social media, you know, groups or whatever they're called, you know, the, the, the circle is a lot of positivity, you know, and there's, there's so many inspiring stories. And what I've noticed again, I, I unplugged TV 10 years ago, yeah. literally. I just yeah. have Netflix yeah, yeah. and Amazon and all yeah. that because I was tired of my son having to watch 20 minutes of commercials every time he watched, you know, a kid's TV show. And he's telling me about, you know, the special knife that cuts fruit and it's only 1999. <laughs> I'm like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, to me, as we've gone through this year, I'm like, holy shit, this is great news. We're actually figuring out how to treat these COVID patients. Holy shit, these numbers actually weren't as bad as we originally thought. Oh my God, you know, if, if you're, if you're into it, there's vaccines. That's also, you know, reducing it. And yet it's not, hey, good news. This is getting better. It's always, oh, but now this strain. Yeah. Oh, you yeah, know, cool. the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the, you know, the Cornwall strain. Oh, so much worse than the Devon strain. Yeah. Like, what because you- it's fear. Yeah. And you, you can control people with fear and, and like, and 
basically, if you can control people, money, right? So it all comes down to money again. Yeah. And it's just, you know, and you got to wonder, and like, I'm not putting my tin hat on here, um, my tin foil hat, but the there there has to be, I do appreciate some of the comments like people making about, oh, the, the vaccinations. It's like, how much money's been made out of that? Oh, yeah. I'm, like the, I'm you know, the so pharmaceutical much. companies, like, Jesus Christ, you know, and it was, I know it was like a race to get the first vaccination and stuff, but it's money. It all comes down to money at the end of the day, all of it. But yeah, like you said then about unplugging the TV. Yeah, I was years ago. I just, I, you know, I don't have uh, aerial in my house. I don't have it plugged into the television. I don't, I don't pay a TV license because I don't consume any of that content. It's all Netflix, Amazon, and Disney. Yeah. So again, you're choosing. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So I, you know, so, so there are, there are positives. I know I I go on about it like a real, like old man about how much I hate the, the current generation, but I guess, you know, there are there are massive positives to it as well. Yeah, and there and there's so many amazing people, you know, of all generations. But sadly, yeah. if you're if if that's a norm, if you literally grow up watching people being horrible horrible to each other, adults being horrible to each other on social media, and you're like, you know, and the news channels, like you know, your two potential leaders just talking shit about each other on commercials, yeah. and you know, then that's your norm. It's like, hey, this is how you're supposed to act as a human being, you know. So, yeah, and I'm seeing it like. And and I've I've been seeing it a lot recently because I I follow quite a lot like UFC and boxing and stuff. Um, I'm quite heavily into that, <clears throat> and this whole kind of Jake Paul thing. And it's just I don't know if you've been following that, but there's this like YouTuber guy who's fighting Floyd Mayweather next week, right? Now it's again money, but it's a lot of it is he's generated this interest in the money by talking shit about other people. And it seems to be like the normal way. And there's a quote, um, Mike Tyson said it was the current generation have got far too comfortable being able to talk shit about each other without fear of getting punched in the face for it. hundred percent. Because it's so much, there's so much, it's so easy to type out some bullshit on a keyboard you know, all these faceless people hiding behind their screens and, and keyboards and and not having to pay any kind of price for it. And it's it's so simple to do that. It's or, or on your phone, just, you know, sending a message to someone on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Even behind the wheel of a car. Think about it. The way people yeah, are when yeah, they drive, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah, usually totally. they get away with it. And sometimes they don't. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it, right? In a, and again, in a car, it's like you think you're protected in your, your big grand metal box. And it the, the like the road rage, and I see people sort of like getting so angry about stuff and shouting and screaming. It's like I know, like if I got out of my car and walked over to that person, they'd soon fucking stop. You know? Yeah. It's it's just everyone feels like they've just got this like it's this invisible barrier of protection around them, and that you can say whatever you want, you can do whatever you want because you're you kind of like well, you can't do anything about it. And it was, there was, a, in fact, there was something made me laugh. Um, as a former UFC fighter, he's an Irish guy. I can't, the name escapes me now. Um, but someone posted on his Instagram and he retired recently. And he said, oh, you know, it's, it's a good thing you're retiring because you were a shit fighter. 
And his repose was, we, I dare you to say that to my face. And he came back and he said, well, no, I wouldn't because you beat the shit out of me. And it was like, <laughs> it's like well, it lasted, then why that's say brilliant. it, Ding like, Dong? Yeah, yeah, absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Because you wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't go up to someone in the street and say the stuff that you see on social media. It's insane. It's like the amount of hatred and, and anger that you see every single day. Um, people are so entitled as well. I mean, I honestly think that a lot of that is tied into the mental health again. You know, you wouldn't, yeah. a, 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 someone of sound mind wouldn't think, would ever think about doing that. I've never thought about trolling someone. You know what I mean? It doesn't, and I'm not saying I even have sound mind. I'm a, I'm a firefighter, so I know my fi- mind's a bit fucked up. But even <laughs> that, I don't want to do it. You know what I mean? So I the, to me, these are all just, you know, when people say, what's wrong with you? I love that philosophy. Like, well, ask what, what happened to you? So, you know, yeah. you obviously had some sort of environment growing up that made you think that was all right. So that's on your parents, you know. So, yeah. you know, every time that you're, you're that kind of person, look in the fucking mirror, man. It's time to, it's time to, <laughs> time to address some shit because otherwise, A, you are going to get punched in the face when it slips out in the street one day or B, maybe that energy you put into being a dickhead, you could actually put into being of value in society and actually improve your nation. Definitely. Um, that would be nice to see. But I, it, it astounds me how much of it you see, though, right? It's like how much you, you know, there'll be a, a, a famous person will maybe post something on their social media and the amount of negativity and, and sort of hate and, and nasty shit that gets posted, all the comments underneath it, it just like, how can there be that many people that have got like that, you know, nasty stuff to say. It's it's sad, really. You know, I think it's really sad how it can be like that. But that's just the world we live in. Well, you've got a concentration too, because good people are probably out doing something other than trolling, yeah, and tweeting, I, and you know what I mean. So sure. it's kind of an echo chamber as well. Yeah, I guess so. that makes sense. <laughs> All right. Well, then, what I would love to do. I know you have a, you know, a. a powerful mental health journey of your own can lead me through the fire service and you know were there any events that triggered it was it more a cumulative effect of you know the the things we see the relationship issues the sleep deprivation um i i think it wasn't anything like i mean like one or two like gnarly things right but i think it was like you an accumulative an accumulation um of being woke up in the middle of the night um, and going out to stuff. I think it was seeing a few things. Um, I think it was the the strain of the job on my relationship and like how that affected things. Um, you know, like my commitment to the job, um, you know, getting back late or getting called out and not being able to go somewhere or being on call and not being able to book off. Um, lots of stuff. Um, all sort of like rolled up into one, I think. Um, and yeah, like over like the f- a number of years, um, I just kind of developed this. I really, really know how to explain it. It was kind of like I just wanted to just be left alone. I just wanted to be on my own. I became very antisocial, 
um, I started removing myself from social events. Um, I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to really speak to anybody, um, which included my wife at the time. Um, and we just had a baby as well. Um, and I found that particularly difficult to deal with. Um, I took little to no interest during the pregnancy. Um, when he was born, I couldn't get into it. I just, I've, I found it like, I just found the whole thing like really bizarre. Um, and I just felt really switched off from it. And obviously my wife at the time was in her little bubble, you know, she was like all like super happy and, you know, it was an amazing time for her. Um, but I just kind of like, I don't really know. I just kind of like, I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't function properly. Um, and I didn't know what it was. And obviously I just became more and more withdrawn, um, to the point where it was obviously causing arguments at home. Um, she would question like what was going on with me. Um, I think at one point she might have thought I was having an affair because I was so just, I just wasn't interested in her. You know, and it wasn't just her. I just wasn't interested in anybody. I didn't want to see any of my mates. I just wanted to sit on my own. And I would literally sit. So at the time we had a house, the family home, and we had an office downstairs. <clears throat> and I would just go downstairs and I would just be like, oh, I'm just going to go and sit in the office. And I would literally just sit with, like, sometimes I'd listen to music. Maybe I'd watch a show on, on Netflix or something with my headphones on. But I just wanted to be on my own. Um, and that went on for probably 18 months to two years. Um, and I, I kind of got a reputation for never wanting to go anywhere or do anything. And, um, I didn't really care because I was like, well, I don't care if that's what you think. I don't, you know, that's, that's just how I am now. And when I look back on it now, cause I can look back on it now cause I've, I've come through the other side of it. Um, I think it was just like you said, an accumulation. It was just, I don't know. It was, I changed. I just changed as a person. Whereas I think in my twenties, I was very kind of like, I don't give a fuck. Very happy go lucky. I was always like laughing and life was just a bit of a joke. I never felt like I had any worries, you know, like I didn't worry about when my next sort of, how I was going to pay my next bill or, or, you know, if, if my car broke down or if I didn't have a car or whatever, it didn't matter. I didn't care. It was like, I'd, I'd live for the day. Um, and then I just kind of was like, found, I was like, well, I started, I don't know. I just like everything became really intense. So like I would, I'd started to like worry about a lot of stuff. I worry about when um, my wife would take my little one out for the day or something. And I'd be like, really like, Oh, make sure that, you know, the, the, the car seats installed properly and that, you know, the seatbelts all done up and check this and check that and, um, make sure that you don't, you know, you're really, really like super vigilant when you're driving, don't use your mobile phone and da 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 da. And it, and I kind of got quite sort of like full on with that. That's just an example of what I was like. Whereas before I never cared, I wouldn't have cared. I would have probably been, you know, in my twenties, I would have been the sort of person that would have 
drove and text, you know, and, and, and stuff. And, um, and I, yeah, I just got to this weird place where I was just unhappy and I was just down. I didn't, I wasn't enjoying my life at all. I wasn't enjoying my time that I had with my son. Um, when she would go to work, like in the evening, um, she would leave me at home to like look after him. And I just, I didn't even want to be there with him. Um, I didn't ever speak to anyone on the phone. I, I, would, I never like reply to messages. I was just like very sad. I'd say I was just really sad about everything. I don't know. It was, it was difficult. And I guess when I look back on now, it was depression, right? But I didn't know that because I'd never had it before. So I just kind of went on like with it, and and she would ask me, she would, like, well, what's wrong with you? What like what's wrong? And I'd be like, just leave me alone. Like, why are you going on at me all the time? Like, I just just I just want to be left alone. Like, I just this is what I was doing. And then eventually it got to the point where she couldn't handle it anymore. Um, which is you know, and I got I don't blame her in the slightest because if I had to live with like someone like me when I was like that, then. I would have left as well. Um, and she moved out. She, she moved back in with her mum and dad. Um, and then I turned on her and I blamed her, um, for like abandoning me, if you like. Um, and it was, yeah, it got really nasty. Um, and I just went through this spiraling kind of depression. Um, and it was, it was awful. Um, and there weren't, there wasn't, a particular event that I would like replay through my head. Um, like you would say, if you had like post-traumatic stress, it was, I mean, there's like a couple of things that I can, you know, that are in there. Definitely. You know, there's one or two things that I'll never ever forget, but it wasn't like a one thing that I can point my finger at and go, Oh, what, when that happened, I changed as a person. It was multiple things. And, the job itself and just everything that came with it that changed me and my outlook on life. And I didn't deal with it very well. And if I could go back, I would change so many things, but hindsight is a wonderful thing. Um, I've since had considerable amounts of therapy, um, through the service, which is amazing, um, all, all put through by them. I've learned to um, accept the fact that I have changed as a person. And, and, and that was a big thing for me was learning that. So when I say I changed, I started to become very aware of how I was. Um, and I didn't like it. And I started to fight against it. So I would say to myself, well, why do I feel like this? Why can't I feel like I felt two years ago? Yeah. Why am I not happy? Why, why do I feel sad all of the time? Why is it that when someone asks me if I'm okay, Hey man, how are you doing? How's your day going? I'd be like, yeah, it's all right. But it wasn't, you know, like, and I, and it, I got tired of, lying to people and saying that I was okay when I wasn't okay. And I just felt perpetually down. I was just sad all the time. Um, and I never understood that the, the big thing that 
when I finally came through it and I came out the other side, the, the biggest thing that I took away from it is that I wasn't ever going to go back to that person that I was before because I had changed and like I had changed, you know, and someone said it to me once. And it was weird. It was, it wasn't through therapy. It was just someone randomly and through, um, I know we'll talk about it later through the smoking aces, um, group. Um, and there was a lad that was in the, the group, um, and we were following each other on Instagram and I was having a particularly bad day and I was at work and I was just sat on my own, um, having a cup of tea. And I, I can't, he could commented on a picture of mine or, or I don't know. And I just reached out and I just said, you know what? Like, I'm not that I'm, uh, he's like, are you okay? And I said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not okay. Like I'd, I'd feel shit. I'm, really down i've been i felt like this for ages i don't know why i feel like it and i just wish like i wish that i could just feel okay again i just want to feel like i felt like before and he said to me you need you need to accept that you might not ever feel like that again because you're a different person now like the things that you've been through and experienced and seen have changed the way you are. You need to accept that you're different now. And it was like, um, almost like a moment of like the light bulb. And I was like, Oh my God, like he's right. You know? And it, it took me a while to apply that, but like the principle was there. And I w- went away from that conversation and I, I started to think like, shit, like I am different now. I do view the world differently. I do have a different outlook on things. I, my behavior's changed. Um, and that was, that was, yeah, that was like a real big moment. Um, but up until then it was a, it, it was a real struggle. Um, and I was exhausted, absolutely exhausted with hating the way that I felt. I didn't want to feel the way that I felt. I was, I, but I didn't know why I was feeling like that. So over time um, and through learning to open up and reach out and talk to people, um, specifically people that have been through a similar thing, you start to like realize actually there's quite a few people that go through this. This isn't I'm not like fucked up. I'm not like a a mess. I'm not, it's not just me. There's a lot of other people out there that do this job and other jobs. Um, And not just, you know, people change. Events can happen that can change people. Um, You know, and when you start having conversations with other people that have experienced it or are experiencing it, you start to feel a little less vulnerable. You feel less like you're on your own. You actually, um, these other people that are telling me their stories are making me feel better about myself because they're going through the same journey or they've been through the same journey. Um, and over time, and it took a very long time, um, I did, I managed to come out the other side of it. Um, and I am now a totally different person than I was in my late twenties when I met my wife at the time. 
Um, we're since divorced now. Um, but the first year or so that we were separated, I couldn't understand it. I was like, I don't understand why I don't get it. Like, why did you leave? Like what happened? And she was like, I just don't, she was like, I don't know. I just, you know, like we just grew apart. I never understood that. I never got it. I was like, but what do you mean grew apart? Like we're like a family. That's what you stick together. Like, you know, when, and all the old tropes, you know, in sickness and in health, I was like, I was sick. You fucking ran away. You left me when I needed you. But it wasn't until like the dust had settled and everything had, had sorted out that I actually was like, actually, yeah, like I get it. Like we did grow apart because I wasn't the person that she fell in love with. You know, I, I changed and I blamed her. Like it was her fault because she left me. But actually looking back at it, it was me, right? Because she never asked for me to change. Like it must have been horrendous for her to like marry somebody and then for that person to like change into a different fucking person and like the father of her child and then be like, well, I'm not happy with that. This isn't the person that I fell in love with. Like, I don't, I don't want to be with this person anymore. So that must've been like kind of traumatic. So I've, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a shit time. Don't get me wrong. Um, and I was on my ass. I was rock bottom for a number of years. Um, and I had some stupid fucking ideas, you know, I had some bad thoughts. Um, I considered things that like, I look back at now and like, wow, like I must've been in a really dark place to have been thinking about that sort of stuff. But luckily I had the help that I needed. And I was, I don't want to say that I was strong enough because that would then potentially insinuate that some people aren't strong enough to deal with it. I don't know. But I was able to get through it and I'm still able to be here today and tell you this story. Right. And I think there's so many people that can go through that and experience that and get to that point and go, I'm so tired of feeling like this. There's no, I'm done now. I'm out. I'm going to check out. I'm done. That's it. And then they do whatever they got to do to end it. Um, and I got no issues with admitting that I considered it, you know, I, I thought about various ways. Um, but I always came back to, well, no, I can't because I need to be there for my son. And that was the one thing that kept me going through all of it. So I owe him that massively. Um, and I've got the most amazing relationship with him now. Um, and he doesn't realize that he's six, but I think when he's old enough, I'll, um, I'll let him know that he was there. Like, and he wasn't even aware, but like he got me through it and, um, I'll be forever thankful for that. So yeah, it was an intense fucking ride. Um, and I'm super glad that I'm still here to be able to tell you like what happened, but it wasn't. The one, like, I think a lot of people think it's like, oh, you must have seen some pretty fucked up stuff. And it's, well, yeah, 
but it's not like one thing that I can't go, well, that was it. You know, that was the one thing that like tipped me over the edge. Um, cause it wasn't, it was like a, it was, I think not just the stuff that we see and have to deal with, but everything that goes around with it. And sometimes it's not like the really gnarly mangled shit that you have to deal with. Sometimes it can be something psychological. And I'll give you an example, a story, and it's, it's quite weird because it's one thing that stuck with me. We went to a, um, it was reported as a house fire. And we arrived and there was no one in the house. The house was empty. Um, the police were on scene and there was a mother and a child that had been in the house. Um, and they'd, the police had turned up and they'd left the property <clears throat> so that the house was empty and there were basically scorch marks or burn marks all up the front of the door. Um, the smoke detectors in the, in the house were going off. We went in, we checked it for any sort of like smoke or, or, or potential fire spread and it was all, it was all clear. Um, and what had happened is the, the, the woman that was living in the house was in a relationship with the guy that was in prison. And while he was in prison, she basically said, look, I don't want to see you anymore, but I don't want you in my life or my son's life. And he was maybe six, five or six, the little boy. Um, so when he got out, he went round to the house and tried to pour petrol through a lap box and set fire to it while they were still living in there. Now I remember I went upstairs and here's the little boy's bedroom. Um, I mean, the house was a mess anyway. It was like you, you go in some houses and you just cannot believe how some people live. Like the state, it was, it was disgusting, like, like filthy, like just really, really dirty. Like, you know, but, and I went up into this little boy's room and his door was hanging off the hinges. Um, and it was like propped up against the side. His bed was like, I mean, he had a bed, but there was no bedding on it. Like it was just like a, a real dirty old shit mattress. There were just empty bottles and cans and shit all over the floor. All of his like, um, furniture, his like drawers and, and stuff were all broken and smashed. Um, and then in like his own like handwriting, he'd written his name and then it's his room. So like so-and-so's room and then just keep out. And he'd like blue tack that to the front of the door that was like hanging off the hinges. And it was weird because I just seeing that really like triggered me. And I was just like, and I think, cause obviously I've got a little boy that was the same age as well. And, I just thought, fuck, like, how can, like, a child live like that? How can, how can like, a mum let their four or five-year-old son be subjected to that? How, how can you let him have a room with, like, his TV was, like, the screen on the television was broken and he didn't even have a fucking bed to sleep in? You know, and like he couldn't even shut the door on his on his thing, and it's just like that was and it weird. So it wasn't anything bad, but like it was just that one little thing that just kind of made me go, "Oh my god!" Like, and it that was that was a long time ago, and it's stuck with me. 
And it's such a minor little thing, right? Such a silly little thing, but it just, it's just stayed with me. And I think when you add up all of those tiny little minor things and probably hundreds of other things that I don't even remember now, and you add them all together, it makes just one real big thing, you know? And it probably gets to a point where you can't process that anymore. And that's when you start to sort of change your outlook and how you view the world changes because you're being subjected to all of these different environments that I would never have even considered in a million years that someone could allow their son to live that way. And just seeing it was like, wow, like it just triggered something in my mind, you know? So yeah, it was, um, I think that's like what people don't really think about is all the little tiny little stuff that all builds up over time. And it's not just one, you know, super traumatic event. It's lots of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think one of the lesser acknowledged things is that we, our profession, police, fire, EMS, we get a completely different lens into society than most people do. And you talk about not being the same person. Well, I was a farm boy from Corsham, Wiltshire, you know, who grew up around horses and my dad was a vet and all this stuff. And then fast forward, I'm pulling sheets over gangbanger victims and going to crack dens and, you know, you know, taking women who turned to prostitution. I mean, like a completely different fucking world than, than I grew up with. So how could that not change me? You know, how could I be this? How could I be James Gearing, 21 years old, driving a mini and playing Snoop Dogg out my, my stereo, innocent as can be, to then actually living that, you know, responding to that world and those hip hop lyrics I was listening to as a farm kid, you know? So it, and then a really powerful insight that you, you talked about is, you know, that whole, and I talk about this a lot because it's an important point to, to drive home that impression that a lot of people get that suicide is cowardice. I've had a lot of people on here that have been to that place. They've literally were stopped by a phone call, by you know some, some divine intervention, or they actually pulled the trigger or jumped off the bridge and they survived, which is a really unique perspective, tragically unique. Yeah. But where they got to, and this is fucking terrifying, but this is what people need to hear, not, oh, think about your kids. Yeah, that works if your brain's still working normally. But if you're past that yeah. point... If you start thinking that you're a burden to the world, that you're a burden to your family, they'd be better off without you. That is what every single one of these people, that feeling, and then obviously wanting the pain to end, like you said. But that's what's so powerful with yours is that obviously that was still a thing. Like your brain had still managed to maintain enough clarity to acknowledge that your son needed you. When, yeah. when your brain is saying, hey, your son's better off without you, that is when it's time to pick up the phone and tell someone, hey, I'm in a really, really bad place. And I need it. I need help immediately because now my brain isn't even making sense anymore. So um, that's a, you know, a, such, as you said, such a powerful moment. And it's going to be a powerful conversation when your son's, you know, ready to hear that. Because, you know, sadly, as you said, there's a lot of people that can't come on this podcast because their brain lied to them and they, they believe yeah. it. Of course. And it happens a lot. I mean, you know, I've been to my fair share of them. Um, and you you just think, like, Jesus. like, And, and it's always the, the one thing 
that I'll say is, is someone that's attended like a, a number of suicides. The, the first thing that I think is how fucked up were you thinking to like have done that? Like, how did you not something just stop you? Like whatever it was, whatever thought just coming to you, like, Oh no, I can't, you know, like I can't do that because of whatever this person or, you know, someone or something in your mind that's stopping you from doing it like how can you arrive at that conclusion it's like no that's it i'm gonna do it there's literally no other way like i'm i'm done like i'm out i'm gonna do it that that's the first thing that i always think like fuck like it must have been so bad and I talk about me being bad. Like I was bad. I know I was bad. I was like, I felt like I was at the lowest of the low. I was rock bottom, but I still had something that was saying to me, nah, like you can't do this, Morgan. You need to like, you need to be stronger. You need to just snap out of it. Stop thinking like this because you need to be there for your son. But to like, not have that little voice or thing in your head that just says that to you so that you can go, well, this is a great idea. <laughs> do you know? Like, <laughs> I'm going to just, do, I'm going to do this. This is a brilliant idea. And then that's it. Cause you don't get a second chance. Well, sometimes you do get a second chance. Like you said, sometimes you survive, but generally you don't. Um, and that's just like, yeah, man, that's, and, and again, you some of the ones that we've been to and you think oh why would you do it that way like why would you like why would you choose to hang yourself or why would you choose to do it that way well when your thought process is that skewed like the last thing you're thinking about is like oh i'm not going to do it because that's a bad idea do you know what i mean it's like you there's there's no logic anymore all of that's gone out the window so yeah, I like the selfish thing. I always said suicide is so I always said that. I was like, oh, it's just selfish. But having been at the bottom of depression and actually considering doing it myself, it, there's nothing selfish about wanting pain to end when there's no end to it and you can't you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, you, this isn't ever going to stop. I'm going to feel like this for the rest of my life. What's selfish about that? Well, and I think the other thing as well is that when they report that you feel, they, they truly, truly believe they're a burden, that becomes a selfless act. Completely fucking wrong. The brain is completely miswired. But imagine if you believe with all your heart that that child that you adored would be better off with you out of this world now it becomes a selfless act. Now you're driven yeah, to do it, you know? So that's what's so terrifying. So when people say, oh, think of your kids, you know, that's not what, that's not, the brain's not going to compute that. It's almost like recognize, hey, if you if you start having those burden thoughts, you're in crisis. It's time to find help right now because that's completely wrong. We all know it's wrong. You're going to leave not only a horrific scene, but you're going to leave your family with even more pain and all the bills and everything else that you're trying to escape. Um you know, but 
thinking it's a selfish act like oh i love my family but fuck them i'm just going to do it no that's not what's happening no, these people no they believe that that they are a burden and if they remove themselves from this world their family will be better off and that is an absolutely terrifying thought but that's where they get to sure yes um yeah and um, now more than ever we're seeing so much of it as well the the i think the um the amount of stress that like the average male is under at the moment, you know, it's like, it, and there are multiple things to blame, but again, the, the current generation of, if you're not earning X amount of money or you're not driving the best car and you're not going, taking your wife and kids on holiday three times a year, or you're not living in a four bedroom house, you know, if you're not, all of these like status quos and it's like, then you're like worthless as a dad and as a husband. And it's like, you can't escape that kind of like celebrity lifestyle. And everybody wants to be, everyone wants to just be like the, the perfect, you know, have the perfect life and, and the, the perfect family. And the reality is that there's no such thing. You can't have there's there isn't a perfect life, and you know everybody's got. But when you see it, when you see the skewed perspective on social media, and I've got firsthand experience of seeing people putting up statuses of, "Oh my god, I love my wife so much." You know, we've got the best life ever. We've just bought this house. We're so in love. Everything's amazing. Everything's amazing. Um, and then three months later, they're divorced. Or like they're not divorced, but they're they're separated, you know, and the lad's off like shagging a girl half his age. And it's like, oh, yeah, right. You know, of course you are. And it's this fake kind of like front that people can like have now. Um and put that and then you see that and see all of these like amazing, like, you know, pictures and, and lives that people are having around you and thinking like, well, why is my life not like that? Why am I not able to go to like these beautiful places? And why can't I afford to do this? And why, why am I not madly in love with my wife? And like, we're doing all these amazing things together all the time, but, everybody has arguments but people don't ever post on social media oh me and the missus had a blazing round last night she threatened to stab me with a fork you know what i mean it's not <laughs> you don't you don't ever see that it's only, people only want you to see what they want you to see yeah the facade. and you can control that so easily with social media um because it's not transparent so i get it i i totally totally get it you know, that people feel like they're, they're not cutting it. Absolutely. Well, you, so you, you talked about this low place. One just kind of tangent, a lot of the people, especially the, in the military, a compounding element for, you know, mental health struggles is TBIs. Now you had a history bouncing, you did, you know, boxing, martial arts a lot of your life. Did you ever, um, have any issues with that and or did you ever discover that your testosterone was very low for your age um so no i i went to the doctors um a few years ago and got tested for it um 
and it's I mean it naturally sorry it naturally decreases as we get older anyway right um but I just got I just had like a full medical and I just wanted to get checked out and um no thankfully mine's kind of where it needs to be right now um obviously it's not where it was when I was in my 20s um but that's just you know we just got to accept that as as part of like <laughs> getting older right um but you know but then I'm kind of happier now because I don't want to fuck or fight everything that I see <laughs> whereas whereas, <laughs> whereas I did in my 20s and now I'm I'm just like the chilled old man you know I just leave me alone I'm sitting in the corner with my cigar and my whiskey and I'm I'm happy um but yeah it's that's I yeah again I can see how that you know the people have like a rapid decline of of testosterone levels that could certainly like affect things so i want to get a 22 smoker aces um so tell me about how you found them and and then you know where people can learn more about them yeah so basically um so it's a friend of mine um that um we trained at the same gym in exeter where i grew up um and at the time he was training to join the paras um, and then he went away and did that. Um, and then I never really saw him again for a long time. And I, I heard rumors that he, he was part of the SAS then, um, and he was doing really well. Um, and we never, we, we weren't, we didn't really stay in touch that much. Um, he reached out a couple of years ago. Um, he set up a, an Instagram page called 22 smoking aces, reached out to myself um, and a few of the other lads and, and asked if we wanted to sort of be part of his team. Um, and he told me a little bit about what he's doing. And essentially the idea behind it is that, um, it's getting a lot of like the, the younger lads that are going for selection. So in the armed forces, um, getting them up to scratch with their fitness. So when they're, they're going in, it's not such a, a shock, um and it's it's building them up not just their running but like making them aware that like you need you know good upper body strength as well and, and good all-round fitness um and he's got a number of whatsapp groups that you're sort of inducted into um and it can range from anything from like obviously myself so like serving firefighters police ambulance um military from a number of um, you know, you got army, navy, RAF, marines. You got them all in there, but they're from all over the world as well. So the wealth of like knowledge is unbelievable. Um, and so the so the the idea is that these guys they come along, they get invited into the chats, and then it's just a a group where people can share their like knowledge and experience about sort of fitness and nutrition. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a really nice kind of positive, um, atmosphere to be around. So, you know, people will just sort of post, um, like a workout that they've done that day or, um, an idea of like a meal that they had yesterday or or something they're going to have later. Lots of like training tips. Um, there's a few guys recently over lockdown, quite a lot of guys were trying to nail, like their calisthenics they were doing lots of like ring muscle ups and stuff and there's a couple of absolute beast lads at the calisthenics group 
um, and they are posting um, instructional videos on how to complete the movements and like what to look out for and lots of step-by-step stuff and like really, really helpful stuff. So um, yeah, I've been part of that for probably three or four years now. Um, and he's got his own clothing range as well, um, which um, he will randomly send me bits and pieces, which is quite nice um, to, to sort of wear and, and show off on my Instagram. Um, you can never have too many training t-shirts. But um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good bunch of lads and, and, and lasses um we've all got the same kind of like fitness kind of mission if you like you know we're all looking always looking to better ourselves in in whatever sort of discipline we are whether that be martial arts like jujitsu or boxing or crossfit or even bodybuilding you know or, or running or cycling um there's always someone that's got good knowledge in that area and if you've got a question, you just drop it in the group and then someone will get back to you and they'll be like, yeah, well, this is, you know, how you want to train for this event or this is how you want to do that. So, and that's, that's obviously how uh, me and you met, right? Yeah. You spoke to Dan about it. Yeah. And I think it was Di, um, the Welsh, um, yeah, the Welsh gym owner. Yeah. yeah. I think he was the one that yeah. connected me initially with, um, with Dan's site. And then obviously, you know, we, we met through that too, but yeah, I mean, what what's impressive about him, you know, obviously having a special operations background is when he posts some of his videos, you know, obviously there's that just unending volume of work that I'm sure is, you know, conditioning people for selection processes. But also, I mean, he's doing handstands, like you said, and rings. So it's not like all, you know, meathead barbell workouts, quite the opposite. So yeah, I, I was I was intrigued and really, really enjoyed, you know, seeing that that smoke and aces family and a lot of the videos they were putting out. Yeah, it's great. It's really good. It's, it's, it's a good little group to be part of, to be honest with you. It's very motivational. Um, like I said before, the wealth of knowledge is, is never ending. Um, and uh, I'm not a particularly active member. I'll, I'll admit that I don't really post probably as much as I should on there. <clears throat> um, but um, I, I certainly get a lot out of it. And um, when I remember, I will sort of like post like something of my own just to try and help out the, the other guys, you know, but it's, uh, I don't know for me, I just find, um, it's just a time thing. I'm not very good at managing my time. I always like feel like I'm busy or I've got to like run off and do something. You know what I mean? It's like, but I'm, I try to, I try to sort of get involved with them as much as possible because I myself have got quite a lot out of it, you know? Absolutely. So where can people find Smoke and Aces and where can they reach out to you specifically? Um, yeah, so Smoke and Aces, um, I, geez, Dan changes the handle on Instagram so often, but I guess if you type 2-2 Smoke and Aces in Instagram, it bring it up. There's quite a few like variations of that. So like where you have the at sign and then two two smoking aces on there there's like there's one for nutrition there's one for fitness there's one for the clothing range you know so there's quite a few different ones but yeah two two smoking aces on instagram uh, my personal instagram handle is morgan underscore t1lt um and i kind of try to post 
ran i don't know i don't even know what my instagram is it's 50 50 split of like me in the park with my son or like me doing some dumb shit in the gym (laughs) so if you're interested in seeing either of that occasionally i might post what i had for dinner um so if you want to see what i had for my tea um if you want to see what me getting punched in the face in the boxing ring or i don't know me having a picnic with my little boy then uh check me out on there beautiful well mate we have we have been down quite the the rabbit hole with this conversation from (laughs) from bouncing to you know the nhs and mental health but i just want to say thank you i think we scraped almost almost three hours in this chat so when you put them together but um yeah i mean it's it's people like you that we need to hear from you know i always talk about this you know when a firefighter, a police officer, a member of the military talks about mental health, especially if, you know, aesthetically they're, you know, tattooed and muscular and everything. It just tears that stigma down that it's weak to talk about mental health or all this bullshit that we were taught years and years ago. So thank you so much for taking the time to come uh, on today. No, that's cool. Like, absolute pleasure. And um, thank you so much for having me on as well. It's been an honor. <laughs>